This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's in beautiful Fresno, California, to give a speech to the masses there. And uh, my request for him to bring back some delicious California oranges was met with laughs, but I'm hoping he'll actually do it. I don't know if he'll be able to get that through the airport, but here's wishful thinking. Cole, uh, how are you doing? Morning. Pretty good. Good. So, As long as you're not asking him to bring orange juice through the airport, I think you might have better luck, right? Okay, that's true. Or well, you can check he, the oranges. Like if he just crushes them, then... Make them very padded with all his clothes in his suitcase. Yeah. Something like that. We have a huge show for you today. Uh, apparently, the king may be back. The king of rock and roll. That's all I'm going to say about that right now. Um, I spoiled Cole's Thursday night plans. And, uh Yeah. I apologize for that, but that's all. Um... <laughs> no, it, it was fine. <laughs> it's it's fine, Jeff. Don't no, no, no. That's not all, Cole. We're going to be talking to a guest about how. What do you, how do you handle your kids' friends that you just don't like? We've all seen Family Matters, right? And Carl Weathers, not Carl Weathers. Was it Carl Weathers? Carl Winslow. Carl Weathers is an actor. Carl Winslow always groaned whenever Steve Urkel would come over. In fact, I think most people in that household would groan when Steve would come over, except the grandma. I think everybody loved Steve except the – or everybody hated Steve except the grandma. So what to do when you just don't like your kids' friends? And are we working ourselves to death? Hmm. Terry, it sounds like – sometimes I worry about you because – the the level of of work you've already put in by the time I get here, and the level of stress you've experienced, it 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 makes me feel like maybe I'm not working hard enough, or maybe no. you're working too hard. There's no stress. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this job has its challenges, but for the most part, it's you know not that tough. Okay. There's other people that have much more difficult levels of employment. Yes, like the man was it uh, Indonesia? Where was that guy that had to? It was his job. To go in, into the uh, into the sewers and unplug oh, yeah. the clogs and yeah, that's gross. Oh, see, there's all kinds of jobs that are much more difficult. This one is just the the biggest stress of my day would be traffic. Oh yeah, and that's really not that big a deal. So. At that early in the morning, yeah. Can you imagine those conversations with that guy that that unclogs the the sewers no. with his wife? How was your day? You probably just can't talk to anyone because <laughs> it's gross. Uh, yeah. Anyway, guess what I found? You yeah. can't you can't have that conversation, you know. I had an interesting day at the office today, honey. Um, Terry, well, what what's going on around the rest of the country? Secretary of State Rex Tillerson made clear Friday that Donald Trump will be holding talks, not negotiations, with Kim Jong Un hours after the stunning announcement that the two leaders will meet. South Korea National Security Advisor uh, announced Thursday night that Trump had accepted the North Korean leader's invitation to hold a summit before the end of May. Tillerson elaborated to reporters in Djibouti 
He's on the other side of the planet. Uh, early Friday, President Trump had said for some time that he was open to talks and would willingly meet with Kim when the conditions were right. I think in the president's judgment, that time has arrived, mainly because the announcement was made. If he'd said no, then he said, I guess this isn't the time. Mm. Uh, Tillerson and Kim had had changed his uh, Tillerson said Kim had changed his posture in a fairly dramatic way recently, which led Trump to dec- uh, decide that it was time to meet with the North Korean leader and that the president made the decision himself. He said the meeting would take place in some weeks to arrange. Uh, it would take some weeks to arrange, adding now is a question of agreeing on timing and the of the first meeting between the two of them. The big announcement was delivered in an unusual way in the White House driveway in the dark by a South Korean national security official, not somebody from the White House. Hmm. Uh, the Associated Press reports that several Pentagon officials said shortly before the announcement that they had no knowledge of what was going to be announced. The Pentagon and the State Department seem to be in the dark on this, mainly because. The people running the State Department are in Djibouti. Yeah, oh, yeah. there's nobody actually in the building anymore, apparently. That's the report you're saying. Earlier in the day, the president poked his head in the press briefing room and announced a big announcement later in the day. Like, there's a door off to the side. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is holding the press conference. The door opens and the president walks in. <laughs> not something that happens. Usually, like the... I read some reports, like the Secret Service, not too happy that he just grabbed the door and walked in. You kind of... There's some more prep work that goes through to get him in that room or something. I don't know. You you think everyone's vetted before they walk into the room. but So the president just opens the door. He's half in, half out the door and goes, by the way, we got an announcement later today and then shuts the door. Good for him. I think the president should be able to do that every now and again. This is showing they need a director of communications in the building. (laughs) And apparently the one that's there that's leaving in a couple weeks wasn't involved i'm not sure because they did the kind of the same thing with the tariffs that were announced yesterday yeah. it was was it going to happen the press conference for it it was kind of haphazard and then they get into the room and uh we'll talk about that coming up here in a second they in this uh, in the meeting he has uh, steel workers and aluminum workers standing next to him holding their hard hats for the photo op sure right? oh yeah he starts talking to one of the guys steel worker or aluminum worker and, and the guy taught the, the the guy shares a story about how his father lost his job and how that's tough with a guy with kids and all this. And then Trump goes, your father is looking down on you right now and smiling. And the guy goes, my dad's not dead. And he goes, well, he's even more happy. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> just having a little bit of background on someone you're going to talk to. Oh, see, but I mean, that, coordination. Sh- that I type of comment shows that he cares, right? Well, yeah, but it's something that the White House could very easily, they could talk to somebody mm-hmm. and have a conversation and avoid, you know, your parent is not dead sort of a trip up you know it's like if you're gonna do this have a little knowledge so you can relate i don't know well, is that really offensive though if somebody said that to you and you're not offensive. the person's not dead it's not, not offensive. offensive it's just showing there's no communication strategy to what they're doing they're all just mm. sort of walking in the door and just okay freestyle what are we doing today i think anytime trump says something like that that is caring we should uh we should celebrate that regardless of the circumstances or lack of knowledge or background there I don't know. I don't know. Either way, I'm not sure how genuine any of it is because it's all a photo op, right? Sure. So it's like, just sign the paper and move on. But oh, well. uh, The President Trump's wish for a trade war looks set to come true after China lashed out at the tariffs he slapped on steel and aluminum imports Thursday with Beijing threatening immediate retaliatory measures. In a frank statement, China's Commerce Ministry said Friday that it strongly opposed the Trump's tariffs and that it would be asking effective measures to protect China's rights. The China Iron and Steel Association urged the Chinese government to bring it 
to bring in uh, tit-for-tat measures on American stainless uh, stainless steel and electronic products and the China Non-Furious Metals Industry Association. They probably have a great retreat every year. The non-furious, <laughs> whatever. Call they call. What if they have to go to anger management? They're non or non-anger furious. F e r r o u s. Furious. Oh, I'm not sure. It. Not furious, but furious. <laughs> uh, they called for action against U.S. goods such as farm and high-end consumer products. The Wall Street Journal reports that both groups have called for retaliatory measures against the imports of U.S. coal. Trump tweeted last week when a country, USA, is losing many billions of bill, uh, dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Hmm. We'll see. Okay. So other countries not so happy. The other thing interesting, the EU, the European Union, has targeted several specific products, and some of them are Harley-Davidson motorcycles, Ooh. Levi's, and uh, certain brands of... Uh, whiskey. Oh, really? Now, the reasoning, certain brands of whiskey are bottled in Kentucky, or is mm-hmm. it Tennessee? Either way, it's the home district of Mitch McConnell, who's the- I thought it was Kentucky bourbon. Either way. I don't know. I don't know my alcohol. So, But it's the home uh, home districts of like Mitch McConnell, who leads yeah. the Senate, and of uh, Nancy Pelosi is Levi's out of San Francisco, mm-hmm. and Harley Davidson is Paul Ryan out of- uh, what Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. So they're targeting the leaders in Congress, yeah, in in certain areas that they would be like, hey, wait, hold on, hold on, and so they're pushing back against tariffs that the European Union doesn't like. So it's just interesting seeing politics played all over the globe on trying to stop something that they don't want to have happen, and they're targeting specific leaders, and each one of them are like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. Except Mitch McConnell. He never talks. <laughs> a Broward County Sheriff's deputy who resigned amid public outrage for failing to enter a Florida high school during the mass shooting last month reportedly told other police officers to stay out of the building as well. According to radio dispatches released Thursday, the deputy Scott Peterson reportedly told fellow officers to make sure, quote, no one comes inside the school. Even as he calls uh, calls flooded in the 911 call centers about the chaos inside Stoneman Douglas High School where 17 people were killed. Despite publicly claiming he believed the gunfire was coming from outside the school, Peterson could be heard on the radio dispatches saying the gunfire was inside the building. They said mm. of the Miami Herald this morning. Nonetheless, he told officers to stay at least 500 feet away at this point, a command a dispatcher then relayed to other police. It wasn't until 11 minutes after the shooting began that officers finally entered the building. Initially, he said mm. he had heard there was possibly somebody shot out by the football field, so he thought maybe it was outside the building. That's kind of what he – this is the security officer that's stationed at the school who didn't go in the building, right? Right. So now we're getting the reports on the radio. You can hear the recordings – He's saying he taught, you know, the shooting is inside the school and they still didn't go in. Uh, so all his defense is like, no, that's not what happened. So now, now it comes down to what, why did you go into the building? That's really what's going to have to be oh discussed here. So, uh, other news, a federal judge expressed skepticism Wednesday as to whether President Donald Trump can constitutionally block people on his Twitter account. <laughs> entertaining the notion that social media platform is a public forum akin to a public town hall where government officials can't silence speakers with opposing views. Once it is a public forum, you can't shut somebody up because you don't like what they're saying, a U.S. District Judge Naomi Reese Butchwald said. Uh, Trump's attorney, Michael Baer, countered the judge's questioning by co- comparing the president blocking someone on Twitter to walking away from someone at an event. 
Bear also argued that Trump's tweets do not qualify as state action, to which the plaintiffs responded that the account operates as an official capacity by announcing policies or policy proposals. Hmm. Right. So people have asked multiple times, is the president's Twitter feed like official statements from the White House or is this just him as a private citizen? How how are we supposed to look at this? And they say this is policy. This is the mind of the president. They've said it multiple times. So now it comes down. Can you just block somebody because you don't like what they're saying on a public feed that you've, you've, Hmm. you've characterized it at? And so the issue is at stake in a lawsuit filed by seven Twitter users who say their constitutional rights were violated when Trump blocked them. It's not clear when the Manhattan federal court will rule on the issue. The judge did say, why don't they just mute? Because there's a function, a function on Twitter where you can mute so that the user of the account doesn't see it, but the person can still post and other people that follow the account will see it. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. if, if the user doesn't want to see it, you can hit mute, but the person, you haven't infringed on their ability to comment on what you're saying. Okay. If you hit block, they can't comment on anything that you said. What do you think? Should he be allowed to block anybody? I have no idea. Okay. I think maybe we should slow down on the Twitter because it's not causing, it's not helping. Sure. Anything he's trying to do has been hampered by something he's done on Twitter. But just imagine for a second the notifications that Donald Trump's Twitter gets on oh. a daily basis. Yeah. I get really excited <laughs> when, like, once a week someone will like my tweet. Right. Yeah. And then I get a little, like, <laughs> bing to my phone that says, hey, you're important. Yeah. <laughs> and I get a dopamine rush, and I'm excited. He um, opens it up. He's got 19,000 of those. Every Ugh. day. Yeah. But he's he's probably getting more than just likes, though. Well, sure. He's getting everyone's. That's yeah. why. That's why if this is acting as a public forum... For a government, a governmental functionality like the White House, can you just block somebody? Well, and Twitter was very important because Barack Obama started an official POTUS Twitter account that was supposed to be handed down in archive. Like his tweets were archived. It is. And then they were supposed to be handed down for Donald Trump to make that his official Twitter. Right. He said, nah, I got my own thing going. Yeah. And just and kept tweeting like with, with his, his own thing. Transportation, too. Yeah, he's got his own thing, so he's like, well, I'll use my account. Well, when you do that, your account doesn't be, isn't a private thing. It's now a public thing. And yeah. so, so they're asking, does the rules change? See, yeah. I think if, it's, if it is the, the Twitter account of POTUS, which doesn't sound like it is, then, uh, yeah, I think, I think you should leave it open. But know. in 2020 or 2024, whenever he does leave office, all the tweets that he made from his private account – are probably going to have to be archived just like Barack Obama's tweets were. Right. So they're going to need access to... <laughs> Can you imagine Which will make a those... fantastic book someday. We will have those on record forever. That's an exciting so it's, prospect. They, can you block or should you just mute? Probably mute. Just mute. If you mute, then, then the, the, you, you avoid the problem because you haven't blocked somebody. They yeah. still think they're talking to you, but you don't see it, so you never respond. You're not going to respond anyways. It's but like Facebook. You don't have to unfriend the person. You can just unfollow. unfollow them. Yeah, it's a great function. It's I a great it. band-aid. Just, just okay, <laughs> go have, have your fun. I don't need to see it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, maybe just don't spend so much time on Twitter. Yeah, well, he's going to do it, so yeah. there's really no fighting it. You mean he's not listening to us right no. now? No, he's busy. Okay. It's probably executive time still. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of shifts throughout the day. So wait, it's 8? 9 o'clock. It's 9 20. Okay. Usually yeah, he doesn't have his meeting till more closer to 11 Eastern. Yeah. So he's still in executive time. Mm-hmm. Okay.
Well, anything else we should be wondering this, about? This story was funny. A California state lawmaker, sometimes called Huggy Bear, for his habit of embracing <laughs> colleagues, has been ordered to abandon the practice after an investigation found his hugs were alienating colleagues. Uh-oh. Senator Bob Hertzberg, a Democrat from the Los Angeles area, received a formal reprimand from the state's Senate Rules Committee Thursday and was told that he would face discipline if he persists in hugging colleagues. Hmm. An invitation or an investigation uh, covering four complaints against Hertzberg going back to 2010 found that his hugs were not intended as sexual advances, but that the frequent and sometimes prolonged embraces made both women and men uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. See, now, like, maybe just like a quick pat. You know, any guy will do this. You'll do the, like, the two pat on the back. It's the half hug, half handshake. Maybe, maybe that's okay. But yeah, it's, it's anytime there's like prolonged hugging or like close talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's back up. It's really uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not a big hugger. I mean, yeah, quick little hug, but then it's like, when it just persists, I mean, like my mom hugs me for too long. I'm like, well, well come on. What are you doing? Yeah, I like prolonged <laughs> I hugs. I have the rest of my life to live here. Come yeah. on. <laughs> I'm okay with that with my wife. But yeah, anybody else, it's, it's like, all right. Hertzberg, who has also reportedly been dubbed Hugsberg for his overly <laughs> friendly greetings, has apologized oh. for his behavior. But he says the hugs are only meant as a gesture of warmth and kindness. I understand that I cannot control how a hug is received and that not everyone has the ability to speak up about unwelcome behavior. This poor guy, because it really sounds like his intentions are pure. Right. And But he's the oh, uncomfortable hug guy. It's so sad. You see sad. him coming and you're like, oh, not again. Oh, All man. right, give him the hug. I mean, his be- name is Bob. <laughs> Bob Hugsberg, yeah. Bob Hugsberg. Or Hutzberg? Hutzberg? Well, hugs. <sighs> well, they, they changed it yeah. to Hugsberg and Huggy Bear. And- Here what comes you- Bob. Hertzberg. What do you do? Do you just kind of back off for a few seconds? Do you just find other meaningful ways to express affection for somebody? What do you do? Like in his in his case yeah. or the, 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 the victim's the case? No, or the huggy no, 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 no. In his case. Because oh, you, you have to change behavior. It sounds like that's kind of at the maybe, core of who he is. Maybe just shake their hand and say hello. Maybe ask before a hug. That would be the thing is to ask. See, he could have an just... Excel spreadsheet on his desk yeah. that says okay to hug for right. five seconds, three seconds, one second, and just put people just, into He could easily put somebody on that. He, you know? he, he probably knows that there are some people that are okay with it, and then yeah. there's some people he are not okay with it, and then there's like that hazy area in the middle. He just needs to be, it needs to be clear. Do you want a hug? I'll give you a hug. No, okay, no hug. Probably just shake people's hands and stop hugging people. See, it is it. It's so interesting though because let's use the name of the example of my name. I go by Jeff or Jeffrey. Okay. In my family, I go by Jeffrey because my sister married a Jeff, and so he's Jeff. Sure. Um, sometimes when people call me Jeffrey, coming from them, it doesn't sound as good as other people. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. Um, I there are some people in this world that. I, you know, I'm not somebody that goes around just hugging random people. Thank you. Some people, when they're giving hugs, you give them a hug and it's like, this just feels right. Like they, they, it seems like they're, one of their callings in life is to be a hugger. Okay. And they're that good. You know, there are people out there that have this great talent for just making you feel like a million bucks Hmm. without even much effort. There are some people out there who make you feel good with a hug. And it's hard to explain. I question their motivation. I think there should be designated huggers, like there are designated people that can make you feel like a million bucks. Should they wear a sign? 
I I'm here to hug. Wouldn't life just be so much easier if we all had like our name and calling in life written on our I, yeah shirts? It'd probably be cleared up for everybody. Like uh, there's a the lovable Grinch, mm. you know. Like if you could have that little label on his chest, you'd know how to treat him a little differently. I don't know. So what would, what would the what should is this is this on the hugger or the huggy to define the relationship? <sighs> That's the a hugger great question. needs to send out a memo asking who all is down for the hugs. Sign up I, by Friday. Sign up by Friday. I do feel like one. I do feel like he should probably know who's a hugger and who's a not a not a hugger. You know. For the record, Jeff. Yes, it's okay to hug me. Really? Uh oh, you shouldn't have said that. I probably still want to hug you, but uh, I appreciate that, Cole. That means a lot, especially after knowing that I ruined your Thursday night. And I apologize. We'll explain more on that later. Um, Are you sleeping yourself to death? Hopefully not. But if you are, our next guest is going to talk to us about some ways that uh, something, some things that we can adopt to not work ourselves to death and get a little more enjoyment out of life. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, before the break, I uh, made a little bit of a flub that Cole was kind enough to point out. You teased something that I was excited for. Yeah, I mean, how intriguing would it be to talk to a guest who is here to talk to us about how we're sleeping ourselves to death? We're Which sl- is, in fact, the opposite. So that's <laughs> that implies, like, laziness and how eventually you will atrophy into nothingness if you continue to oversleep and and do nothing. Sure. As opposed to what we're actually talking about, which is doing everything. So sleeping yourself to death, I guess, could be either like a coma or just actual death, right? Well, yeah, going peacefully <laughs> in the night. Mm-hmm. No, no. We meant to say working ourselves to death. We've been working ourselves to death. And we're actually oh. uh, we're still trying to connect with our guest on the, fo- on the phone for that. So uh, look out for that, and I'm sorry to disappoint you, Cole, and everyone listening. We will not be talking about sleeping yourselves to death. That is not a problem in our household. We don't get that much sleep that it's a problem. Well, you do you have know? a newborn. That is Ish. true. <laughs> that is true. And it's it's interesting because as a parent, you look at your kids, your young kids, and I've got a, so a nine-month-old, a, an almost four-year-old, and a six-year-old, and – they're all just waking up at these obscene hours, right? And they're just – I think they have this mentality of, Whoa, what are we missing out on? I cannot miss out on anything, so I've got to be up at 6 in the morning. And you look at them and you say, if only you knew what you are giving up. There's a lot of life to come, bud. You yeah. Can, you can live and enjoy uh, things later. Now you can sleep Yes. At least from like 6 to 10 on a Saturday morning, right? Because I guarantee you in like 10, 15 years, it's going to be a whole different ball game. You hope. Yeah, well, <laughs> now it's just going to be on the other the opposite of the extreme and it's like get up. Anyway, uh we wanted to hear how I ruined Cole's Thursday night and in preparation for screen cleaning today, 
Well, in preparation, we can go back further than that. In preparation for screen cleaning every week, I try to, if we're going to talk about a movie on Friday Mm -hmm. and it's coming out Thursday night, I try to make myself prepared for the show and go and see the movie. Okay. And so it's Thursday at about 6 or 7 and I text Jeff saying, hey, we're going to talk about Wrinkle in Time tomorrow because it's coming out right now and it's it's a kid's movie and it's clean and we're probably going to talk about it, right? And as I'm preparing for my date night with my wife, I neglected to respond to Cole's text. And so Cole decided I'm not going to go see Wrinkle in Time. Going to go home, have dinner, go to sleep early because I'm going to be at the Matt Townsend show in the morning. I apologize, but I will say I think in the end you're going to be very grateful to me that you didn't go see Wrinkle in Time. Okay. It's not getting the best of reviews, we'll just say, which is not really a huge surprise to me. And we can talk more about this with with Rod Gustafson. But I think the highlight of the story here is I'm sorry. I accept your apology. But knowing that you were on a date with your wife now, (laughs) it's totally acceptable that you did not – before, Text your coworker. Before you knew that, you were you were cursing my name. Oh, oh yes, obviously. Yeah. Um, interesting. You know, I, I want to share this story. We I don't know that we'll have time to talk about it on screen cleaning, but you probably heard in the news uh, the night of the Oscars, and we're going to be talking about the Oscar ceremony uh, during screen cleaning. Mm-hmm. Frances McDormand, who won the Best Actress Oscar for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Did not hold on to her Oscar for very long before uh, it was taken from her. Oh, no. Did you hear about this, Cole? I did not. Enlighten yeah. me. So um, – I, and I didn't know this before this last – this latest Oscar ceremony, but apparently – and I suspected something because everybody that was holding up their Oscar, there is a blank plate, right? Oh. So their their name has not yet been engraved on the Oscar. To avoid spoilers, that's smart. Someone right. in yeah. the graving the engraving metal plates factory would probably take a Twitter picture. Oh, and sure. Somebody at the know. ceremony would do it, yeah. you know? Um, so after the ceremony, you go and you get your name engraved on the Oscar, right? So she had that done. Then they she went to the governor's ball. It was this party, big party after the ceremony. And apparently the ticket taker for that event uh, thought it would be cool to snatch Francis McDormand's Oscar and brag about taking it on Facebook. So he took a little video of him holding her Oscar. Somebody spotted him and said, hey, what are you doing? And he took off running. He was stopped. They got the Oscar back immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, this guy is going to have to pay like 20 grand. And he might have... (laughs) Jail time too for his. Does little the ticket taker stent. at the governor's ball have twenty grand just sitting around? Probably not. Okay. Anyway, I was surprised to know that um, this is not the only incident of an Oscar being. Oh, stolen. Oscars can be slippery. Oh yeah, and they're valuable and prime for the the stealing. Oh, yeah. if, if someone else has some sticky fingers, I read about three different instances of Oscars being stolen. The first one. And there's something about supporting actress. They Those ones are particularly slippery. Mm. Whoopi Goldberg. Can For you remember? Ghost. That's right. Mm-hmm. For Ghost, she won Best Supporting Actor. And apparently uh, years later, she was sending it in to be cleaned and replated, something, something to that nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it showed up at the facility to be cleaned and replated, the box was empty. <gasps> and apparently there was some guy at an airport who found the Oscar in the trash. 
as you do in the trash. So he uh, he they gave it back to Whoopi, and Whoopi swore that she would uh, her Oscar She's would never, never leave her house again. again uh-huh. Right? Interesting little side note about uh, Whoopi Goldberg. She's one of the few people that has won the EGOT, which is an Emmy, Emmy Grammy, Grammy, Oscar, Oscar and, and a Tony. Tony. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what had happened was a guy tried to steal it and realized that an Oscar has like a serial number and it has their name on it. So he figured he was, wasn't going to have much luck trying to sell it. Mm-hmm. So he threw it away. <laughs> but she got it back and all was good. The next one, Olympia Dukakis. Do you happen to know who that is or what she won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for? That one I don't. Moonstruck. Okay. Okay. The also, movie with still Cher. don't know. <laughs> yes. And um, – so hers was stolen from her home. It was in a display case. Sto- it was the only thing stolen from her home. Huh. And it was a it, targeted burglary. It was never, ever recovered. It's still at large today. Right. And so she contacted the Academy to get a replacement, and they charged her for it. <laughs> They charged – and I guess – Does she have Oscar insurance somewhere that took yeah, care of that for her? That's a good question. I, I, at first, that seems a little harsh, but uh, OK. Um, but, you know, $75, it could have been avoided. And we've got one more that we can tell you about, but we've actually got our guest on the phone here. So, again, when we return, we're going to be talking about how we are working ourselves to death, not how we're sleeping ourselves to death, as we said earlier – And uh, his name is Peter Fleming, and we'll get to that when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Work. You know, it's what we do. It's it's how many define themselves and gives them purpose and direction in their lives. But just like anything, there are limits. All work and no play can lead to serious health consequences. And research shows that more than 12 hours of inactivity per day, like sitting at a desk, can have similar effects as smoking. Joining us now is Peter Fleming, a professor at Cass Business School, to discuss his book, The Death of Homo Economicus, Work, Debt, and the Myth of Endless Accumulation. Peter, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much. So I've always wondered, why is it that we work so much? You hear about some of these other European countries that get a lot more holidays than we do, and things seem to be doing okay there. Why is it that we here in America and in in other parts of the world, why are we working ourselves to death? Well, that's one of the big questions I'm trying to tackle tackle in this book. Um, You know, one one of my big challenges that I had to get around was to kind of rethink um, the nature of work because we're still kind of we're still kind of told that it's you know it's basically to do with our biological self preservation um, that if we don't work you know we, um, we 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 die because we we, we need it to survive. But I, I really thought about that quite a lot, and it's kind of making us think that, you know, me sitting in my office um, uh, writing stupid emails all day <laughs> is the same thing as, as hunting and gathering in a, in a previous era. And clearly, they're very, very different. So, so what I think has happened is that, 
You know, it probably started off that work was related to our survival, but it's kind of become detached from that, and it's kind of now a institutional ritual. And I talk about the theatre or the ceremony of work, where it's looking like a worker more than actually doing productive stuff. Of course, we do productive stuff, but if you think of all of the padding that goes into a working day, you know, um, there is a kind of a lot of display work going on. So, so that then begs the question: Why have we, why have we kind of really kind of ordered our society around this thing called work? Well, I think it's related to the economic ideas um, that really kind of come into fruition in the 70s and 80s, that um, you know, classical economics. Um, and that's really kind of the where, the where the title of the book comes from, Homo Economicus, Economic Man. So it, this, this doctrine of economics basically said, look, you are fundamentally all about your work. Income is everything. Um, life and income are the same thing. So you get all of these ideas of human capital, self-branding, um, and, and so forth. And you know, once the once the, uh, the 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 kind of that kind of thinking really took off, all of our institutions from the 80s, you know, Reaganomics, we had Thatcherism here. I'm actually from New Zealand. We had our own brand of it called uh, Rogernomics in, in the 1980s. All of our institutions really become geared around you know what you did for a living. You you go to a party. That's the first question someone asks asks you. You know, not. Not you know um, about you know your family, not about your faith, or not about anything else. You know what do you do? That's the only thing that matters. And so I think really now we're seeing the kind of the the chickens are coming home to roost. It kind of was fun and it worked well for a while, but now we're really seeing some of the inimical effects of a life that is dedicated purely to work. Yeah, and, and Peter, I appreciate the example that you shared with sitting in your office and and feeling like. Oh well, I'm I'm working, sending out all these emails. I feel that way on a on a daily basis. Like, am I actually busy, or am I actually being productive, or am I just uh, is it just the appearance of of looking busy? And I'm curious to know more. You you gave a couple of of examples here in this article. Do you let's see uh, the the headline of is it? Do you know? Uh, do you work more than 39 hours a week? Your job could be killing you. And you give the example. Of of tragedies that happened at at uh, Bank of America and Barclays, and mm. I was hoping you could share those with us, and then maybe talk a little bit about why is it that it's social, it's so socially acceptable or encouraged or celebrated. Oh, I work so many hours a, a week. Yeah, yeah. So those examples, they they are very tragic, and uh, so I, I I didn't kind of approach them lightly because you no. Know, the, the stories are kind of very sad. You know, um, there was a intern um, who was working for Bank of America here in here in London a few years ago, um, or it's Earhart, and um, he basically um, was really indoctrinated into this culture of of overwork that it was something to be um, kind of lionised, a badge of honour, if you like. And he ended up working thirty-two, uh, sorry, sorry, seventy-two hours straight. Um, and he would kind of go into the uh, into the office, go back for a shower, go back in the middle of the night, and he he eventually had an epileptic uh, seizure and and died. And so this really hit the headlines in London because, uh, like many big cities around the world, 
everything is really revolving around work and there is this glorification of, of, of long hours and a long hours culture in many organisations. And this really kind of was a wake-up call that um, this thing that was supposed to be about us, uh, you know, biological self-preservation is now kind of really kind of killing us and, and, and doing, doing some really real, real harm to our, to our bodies. So that was an example that I thought was really telling especially because he wasn't even being paid. He was an intern, oh. so it doesn't really make sense, you know. Um, that, that it was kind of, it, it tells you that it wasn't really economic uh, or, or it wasn't to do with the money, it was to do with the culture and the, the ritual and the, 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 the kind of almost sacri- sacrificial, sacrificial, um, sorry, that's my phone going off, I think. <laughs> um, so so uh, sacrificial element to this culture of overwork. So why is it then that we still um, consider it to be the, 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 the most important thing about us? Well, in the banking industry, it's a very masculine thing. So I think there's a gender element there. And, and, and also, I think after years of reconfiguring our social institutions around what we do for an income, what we do for a living, all of the other institutions have kind of been put into the background and so they're not seen as important so one thing i've been trying to argue in this book from from my from my research is first of all i'm not an advocate of laziness or doing nothing right Um, there's actually a really good business case for reducing the hours people put in at the office many studies show that if we cut down the hours we spend each week in the office or on, on our jobs, we're actually more productive and we get, actually get, ironically, get more done. Um, and then second of all, I think just putting work into, in its place and, 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 and kind of putting boundaries around it, given, given that um, even epidemiologists, medical people are really getting interested in overwork because of the huge cost it puts on the, um, the healthcare system. Um, so, so those are the kind of things that I've been trying to explore, if you like, in this book. So, Peter, what what would be a healthy amount of work each day? Is it is it the standard eight or nine or ten hours that we do currently, or should it be less than that? You you mentioned that that uh, there are businesses that are trying to cut down on the hours so that people are more productive. Yes, yes. Well, it depends on the it depends entirely on the job, of course. You know. Um, so we need to kind of take into consideration the actual task that is being done. But if it's office work, um, where a lot of sitting is involved, um, we could probably be productive at the office for around four to five hours a day. Really? Um, mm, yeah, yeah. So, so the studies show that it's a bell curve. You know, it takes us a while to get warmed up. We kind of really get productive work done. And then after that, because, you know, physically I can't concentrate on a trading desk or doing emails for 12 hours straight. It's just impossible physically yeah. not because I, I, I'm, I'm kind of um, uh, lazy or anything. It's just physically I cannot do it. So, so the ritual, I think, is out of sync with the productivity that's going, that is being done in, in the office. So I think the ritual has gone, gotten away, if you like. So there's many studies, you know, um, a very interesting study by Alex Pang. He wrote a very interesting book called 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 Rest, 
showing how, you know, rest during the day and having a shorter working week easily outperforms the grueling culture of overwork that we see now prevalent in many in many occupations. So the the jury's out considering considering what is the ideal uh, working week or working day. But it's certainly in every every case that I've seen anyway, it's certainly less, much less than what we're doing now. How do we handle or what what ideas do you have or what what scenario could work where we go to our employers and say, you know, we actually need less work. If we had less work, we could work harder and be more productive. What What's it going to take to make some of these changes that you're talking about? Well, I think that... Um one of the one of the strategies, the rhetorical strategies, I guess, in the book is to say there is a business case. So I'm not anti-corporate or I'm not anti-business or anti-work even. Um, I enjoy work as, as much as the next person. But there is a there is a business case for um, for a more kind a, a, a more relaxed working week. Um, and so, if it is deemed to be uh, essential or connected to productivity and efficiency and the profitability of any organization, then I think that um, employees should get together and, exp- and and share these ideas with each other and 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 put put it put it forth to an employer of course the of course the the, the big challenge is that the work ethic is so ingrained in everything we think about um, we would have to frame the proposition in a way that doesn't make it look like we just want to have a longer holiday or or go to the beach or whatever. Yeah. So so because it's so black and white at the moment, you know, if I'm not working, then I must be doing nothing, um, which of course is a double bind. Um, if I'm not working, I can be very productive, but I'm just not working at the office, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So so I think I think I think kind of dislodging that kind of mindset and, and, and beginning a conversation in a, in a very reasonable way. Um, unions in, the, in, in Europe have been quite successful uh, in many organisations um, in, in France and, and increasingly in the UK and Scandinavia for, for saying this will be good for not only morale and family life, of course, which really hurts under, under this um, employment system, um, that um, it would be good for profit- profitability as well. So, Peter, other than the extreme examples where people are literally working themselves to death, what sort of consequences can working too hard or too long have on our health? Well, there's a growing number of studies um, that look at um, blood pressure, um, heart disease, um, also, long-term stress can have a really um, damaging effect on our physiology, but also indirectly. You know, when I am working um, all of these hours, I think that you, we also have to think of what's happening at home. Um, the household tends to go into crisis from the research I've conducted um, when we have an overworked employee. The the damaging external effects are really kind of lived out in the in the private lives of these people as well, and that can have also a real impact on one's psychological and physiological well-being too. Because you're not looking after yourself, you're not eating properly, exercising, and so forth. 
So I think that if we look only at work as 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 the source of harms, um, we kind of forget about what happens behind the scenes, what happens when people get home at ten o'clock at night, and you know the family's unhappy because they haven't seen they haven't seen um, you know mum or dad, and so I think we really need to take that holistic point of view. Yeah. So actually, at uh, at work right now in our in our organization, we have all these wellness initiatives, and right now there's a a sleep initiative where people are being incentivized to sleep. I think it's a challenge over a month and a half. They want them to sleep for seven to nine hours. So this is something. I mean, for a lot of people, their job is what it is. They're not going to to be even considering having conversations like this with their employer, like, actually, can I get less hours, you know, or fewer hours? It, the job is what it is, right? So what are some things that businesses can do other than decreasing the amount of hours that their employees are working? What are some things that they can do to encourage healthier lifestyles or uh, so that their work there doesn't have to be as stressful? Well, there are a number of initiatives, um, and I think it has to be led from the top because um, I've heard of some programs where, you know, you get one day off a month um, every every third Friday of the month. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, don't come into the office, but then you hear that the CEO is actually coming in and you're thinking, <laughs> oh, no, what's he thinking about me? Yeah. So it's really got to be led from the top. Um, but I like that initiative of taking a day off, um, and that's kind of growing at the moment, particularly in the United States, um, and seems to be uh, producing some interesting um, outcomes. Really, mobile technology, I think, is the big one too. Um, You know, mobile phones and um, smartphones and which, cell phones in which, you know, you're always connected to the office. And that boundary between work time and private time slowly blurs, um, and then you find yourself answering emails when you're watching the kid play soccer and so forth. So company policy around appropriate email use and and expected expected email use, um, the manager or your supervisor saying, I don't expect you to answer an email if I send it to you at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night. In many organizations, there is an expectation, expectation that you're checking your emails until midnight. Um, now, you're not being paid for that time, of course. So I think appropriate use and, 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 and kind of established norms around around email, office email, particularly around um, smartphones and, and, and tablets and so forth would be, would be one, one, one issue to explore quite seriously, I would say. Well, Peter, we really appreciate your time and, and great advice leading from the top down. And uh, I think I'm going to check out that sleep initiative we've got going on here at uh, BYU. Anyway, when we return, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to tell you what happened with that last case of the missing Oscar. Cole, you ever seen the film Meet Me in St. Louis? Aw, yeah. With Judy Garland. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is where we get the song, uh, which one is it? Um, 
Uh, I mean, I know what you're talking about, but it's much more entertaining to hear you sing. Makes for great radio. Anyway, it's that Christmas song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. There it is. So the little girl that starred in that film as Judy Garland's sister was one of the lucky few uh, young people to win an honorary Oscar at the Academy Awards. And I saw a picture. It's cute. It's like this little mini Oscar statuette. (laughs) And she was another victim of theft. No. And this Oscar was missing for decades. Decades. And it showed up. You know, she kept her eye open at flea markets and all these places where stuff like that would show up trying to be sold. And it wasn't until the 90s that it finally popped up at a flea market. These two guys bought it. And then uh, when it was trying to be sold at an auction, people that knew of her and that the Oscar was missing contacted her. And all these guys wanted, they didn't want reward money. They just wanted to take a picture with her. And they said, we want to take a picture of us awarding her the Oscar Uh so that we can tell people (laughs) that we handed out an Oscar. Funny. So good for them for doing right by her. And yeah, I think this is just a good lesson overall. I I, I wish, I hope we can get back to the point where people just aren't stealing anything. That'd be nice. And I'm glad that you brought up Judy Garland because whenever we do talk about the Oscars on screen cleaning, we'll be talking about Oscar snubs. (gasps) Judy Garland was someone who never won an Oscar despite all... Of those fantastic did performances. Even, did she even get an honorary Oscar? I believe she got something for like walking down the yellow brick road kind of thing. Like, the Wizard okay. of Oz was pretty important. And, but. you know, so she, it sounds like she got some sort of a consolation prize, which is another thing that we'll be talking Hey-o. about in our Oscar post-mortem. These are coming good up teases. On We're getting good at this. Oh, yeah. And uh, in the meantime, uh, think about how you're sleeping yourselves to death, as we joked earlier. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We had a fantastic first hour speaking with our guest about working ourselves to death and maybe even sleeping ourselves to death as I flubbed that up earlier. Uh, this hour, we're going to be talking about how the king of rock and roll may still be alive, if you can believe it. As if you thought he wasn't. A lot of people are—it's it, funny, I didn't realize this. I just learned this, that a lot of people theorize that Elvis actually appeared in the film Home Alone. Well, of course. Um, True conspiracy theorists would already know this. <laughs> look it up. Look up Elvis Presley, Home Alone, And you'll get a freeze frame of what I'm referring to. Uh, We're also going to be talking about what to do when you just don't like the friends that your kids are hanging out with. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. We, We mentioned the example of Steve Urkel from Family Matters. That's more of a fictional view of this. But for a lot of families, it's a very real thing. You have these kids that are just not a good influence on your kids. And you don't really want them hanging out with your kids. So uh, we're going to give you some – well, we're not going to do it. Our guest is going to do that. Sean Grover is going to tell us what we need to do when we just don't like our kids' friends. 
And if you say, don't hang out with that kid, they'll hang out with that kid. Right. And just to defy you. And one of the things that he'll be talking about that's is- that's what I did. Yeah. Other productive <laughs> things that you can be doing right. if you don't want to dis- just dissolve that friendship. Because in a way, that's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on it. Or as, mm-hmm. you, as you said, it's making it worse, right? Because when you tell your kid, don't press that button, of course oh, yeah. they're going to press that button. You leave the room, that's the first thing they're going to do. <laughs> Oh, isn't it funny and kind of cute when you walk into the room and your kids uh, feel like they're doing something wrong and that you're going to be upset with them, so they're hiding whatever it is that they're oh, right. doing. No, I, I will not. When my my kid will like put something away real quick. Oh yeah. And so when I you see it because obviously, and I always go, "What, what were you doing? What was that? <laughs> Who are you?" <laughs> are but is, do you really? Is it? Is it? Are you pretending to be? Yes. Suspicious? Okay, because that's another thing. Like with kids, if you really are – if you make it a big deal, that's why they're doing it because it well, becomes a big deal. Then it, then it turns into a joke, but then I found out what it was and most – I'm I, every single time so far, it's been nothing. Yeah, well, yeah. for some reason – and then I'll ask him like, why did you think that was wrong? Yeah. And he'll go, well, you know, because you said this. And it had to do with um, – what was it? There was some movie on Netflix – he thinks it's okay to watch the emoji movie. I think he should feel guilty about that, but he feels great about it. It was something else, and it wasn't something bad. It was just a movie that we, that I, my wife and I we didn't talk to him about it. Sure, but we had said, "Yeah, let's probably not let him watch that." But mm-hmm. then he watched it. But for some reason, he thought you know something was wrong with it, and so I talked to him, yeah. and it was more just. I guess he he got the feeling somehow that we didn't want him to watch it. it was weird, you know. Yeah. Some some way he got some message that we, he wasn't supposed to watch this movie. So I'm actually grateful for those little reality checks every once in a while where my kid is worried that I'm I might be upset with them because it makes me think of, you know kind of reassess what I'm doing as a parent. Like oh maybe I do need to lighten up a little bit. Maybe right. I'm being a little too strict with them. So anyway, I'm excited to speak with Sean Grover because he's got some tips that I think will help me as a parent as well. But uh, before we get to all of that, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? From Maryland to Maine, millions of Americans digging out and doing damage control on Thursday after a blustery nor'easter dropped over two feet of, as this says, gloppy snow across the northeast. Millions of... uh, Nearly a million utility customers still shivering in the cold and waiting for the power to come back on, while legion of workers, as it, the article says again, yeah. schlepping through the slush <laughs> after the... Uh, someone, someone, to say. Someone was bored during the Nor'easter yeah. and thought of an interesting <laughs> way to present this. After the unwanted snow day, uh, they faced nightmare commutes. Hundreds of flights remain grounded. Airports emerged from the foul weather induced paralysis struggling to clear runways so the planes could land and depart so yeah it's messed up in the in the in the east they're probably going to get a little bit more and then it continues on but again powers out there's some people that have been without power for like seven days Ooh, wow. since the first nor'easter that came through last week and then they had the second one recently and they just had no power the whole time oh which would be horrible brutal. you had a few days of no heat no, it was pr- it's more like a week, two weeks, yeah. and that was really rough. So these the, uh, people are digging out. The problem is, again, you have thick, heavy, wet snow, hits trees, which hits power lines, and starts knocking out power. Yeah. Gloppy. Gloppy snow, as it Gloppy. says. Glop- and they're schlepping through so it. So we've got a parking lot just down the street that houses huge piles of just dirty snow. We passed it last night, and I turned to my wife and said, that's where snow goes to die. That's it. 
and whatever they caught up in the what was ever caught up in it the really snow, right? looked like a yeah. snow cemetery it'll turn it'll turn like like black because of the oh, soot yeah. and pollution yeah. and stuff oh. kind of so president trump has accepted north korean leader kim jong-un's invitation to meet with him the really? pair will meet by may it says <sighs> now i found this in the financial times because you know Everybody start praying now. Occasionally I read the Financial <laughs> Times, but it says, who stands to gain from this? On the surface, it is a win-win situation for all leaders. Mr. Trump demonstrates that his signature foreign policy initiative is making headway, which, what, Rocket Man and Fire and Fury, that oh, was his boy. signature process with that. Mr. Kim garners domestic uh, prestige and the international spotlight for meeting a U.S. president for the first time. Wow. South Korean president reaps the rewards of, su- of successful diplomacy and the benefits of reduced tension on the Korean peninsula, which months ago appeared to close to conflict. Trouble may arise later, however, if talks begin to flounder. Likelihood of success for Mr. Kim simply hosting the meeting will count as a success as it will generate prestige and legitimacy for the reclusive regime for the U.S., leader, uh, President Trump, the equation is more complex. Experts are skeptical that North Korea will genuinely give up its program, weapons program, which it views as a deterrent to U.S. aggression. Hmm. The regime may promise to do so, but in history shows it has a poor record for upholding such pledges. In 1994, it signed the agreed framework to freeze its plutonium weapons program in exchange for aid. The deal collapsed in uh, 2002 as U.S. intelligence found that the regime was secretly pursuing a uranium enrichment program. So what they said they weren't going to do in 1994, they were doing it by 2002. Hmm. In 2005, North Korea committed to denuclearization following multilateral talks. It tested its first nuclear device the very next year. So it goes, yeah, sure, we're not going to do this. And a year later, they did it. So they have a history of reneging on agreements. Yeah. Right. So you have a meeting. If, it, if an agreement comes about, what value does it have? You know what we need is some of that vibranium. Vibranium. That's some good stuff <laughs> right there. It's just a made-up thing. Um, also, uh, this, uh, if the Vanity Fair article I read several months ago is true, this is the first foreign leader that Kim Jong-un has actually spoken to. Wow. Since he took over as president of the country. This is huge, but yeah, th- it's going to be they're interesting. Cl- they're close to China, but their leader hasn't talked to him at all. Yeah. They try to stay away. <laughs> It, it does bring up a good point, though. When the dust settles, will this have accomplished anything? But it's, I guess, a step. But it's in a the step right forward. Uh, talk is better than you know, lobbying but talk insults. Is also cheap lobbying insults on Twitter. Well, I mean, but you have the you have the two people who would basically make the decision sitting yeah. there. I still think we all need to start praying there that is, things turn out okay. There is with the that side meeting. of it that you know, it's a Trump has no experience this way. His people need to be heavily involved. He has a history of not listening to his people, as he just did on tariffs. Yeah. Eh, so I don't know. How does this work? We'll see. President Ugh. Trump signed an order imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum Thursday, but the U.S. is holding off on tariffs before Mexico and Canada. The tariffs are set at 25% for foreign steel, 10% for foreign aluminum, with the possibility of partners removing tariffs through talks. In remarks, the president stressed the country's need to protect and build steel and aluminum for national security purposes while maintaining flexible and cooperation with friends and ours. Some are saying that that very point, the national security part of it, that we need steel and aluminum tariffs to protect our national security, might be where this whole thing breaks down when and if it is challenged in court, because how do you prove a national security interest with steel and aluminum? Right. Yeah. 
that's the that that'll be the concern where this goes. House Speaker Paul Ryan, channeling nearly all GOP lawmakers, said in a statement that he disagreed with Trump on this decision, adding that we will continue to urge the administration to narrow this policy so that it's focused only on those countries and practices that violate trade law, not those that have been trading legally and sure. you know, genuinely yeah, with the country, yeah. and now we're somehow putting a tariff on them. Jeff Flake from Arizona, a senator, he is putting legislation together to try to stop this whole thing from happening. Ooh. So, drama. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology found that stories with false or inaccurate information spread far faster on Twitter than factually sound ones. For the study published Thursday in the journal Science, scientists analyzed 126,000 news stories shared by 3 million people across the entire history of Twitter from 2006 when the platform started until the end of 2017. The research found that false news stories were about 70% more likely to be shared by Twitter users than true ones. The research also found that it took true, uh, true news stories about six times longer to reach uh, 1,500 people on Twitter than stories that were false. Hmm. So that 1,500 plateau, it took six times longer for a true story to reach that many people oh, than a fake story. No. So what they've found is that it's not the bots, not the automated uh, Twitter accounts that just retweet everything. Yeah. It's not those that are the problem. It's the humans that are the problem. Oh, absolutely. We're the ones that keep pushing these fake stories. It's not some, you hear like, oh, the computers and the bots and, and Russian interference and stuff. And it's like, well, that's all in there, right? They're, yeah. they're, not, they're not trying to say that automated accounts aren't a problem, but they are saying the bigger perpetuator of the fake news are humans sharing it with each other. Sure. Either because they think it's funny or because they believe it. Either yeah. way. Hey, don't fall for that clickbait, folks. Anytime that is, you see something that is too ambiguous, like if you see a picture of Dwayne The Rock Johnson and it says we lost him too soon, don't buy into that. Only believe it if it says this actor has died or is dead. Right. That's when it's true. <laughs> so It's funny because speaking of that, you have so many celebrities that every I saw an interview with Macaulay Culkin. He's like, at least once a year, oh, yeah. I'm having to announce that no, I'm not dead. He's like, my my uh, agent will call up and is like, I just want to make sure you're still alive. Yep, still alive. Okay, bye. <laughs> just checking. Yeah. Oh, Verify first. Absolutely. That's sad. That's kind of scary too. So, yeah. Hold on a second. I'm trying to. There we go. But it's this idea that. The, the the story that's gone out is that there's all these computer programs that are doing this to us and there's, you know, foreign actors and there's all these other influences and they're all there. But the biggest cause is us. Yeah. Human nature to just retweet something. Oh, boy, and, that looks cool. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I know I think I would want to do it out of I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's many times where I don't even – like, I don't even hit the retweets. It's like, uh, you know, what is that? I don't even know what this is. And you start looking into it a little bit more, and, uh, so you skip it. Yeah. Right? And then, like, I'll do, like, sports stories. Like, mm-hmm. so-and-so said this. It doesn't even have to be – I mean, and half the stuff is, like, it's sources said, but it's, like, really thin. And I'll just retweet like crazy because who cares? It's sports, right? It's like what President, said, uh, President Trump says – Oh, people are saying this. Yeah. And it's all just... People have said... People have said... Really, it was me a couple seconds ago saying this. There was this story that came out about the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team where there's a player who got mad at a coach and so he threw a bowl of soup at him. 
<laughs> oh, my goodness. Right? The story's ridiculous. Yeah. I saw that. It was the first time it went out. Retweet, no problem. Don't even think about <laughs> it. That's ridiculous. Too. Who cares? Because, I mean, the outcome is he didn't throw a bowl of soup. Yeah. Right? Who cares? Yeah. But when it's a story like Hillary Clinton is a lizard oh. <laughs> wearing a human disguise, <laughs> eh, okay, hold on. <laughs> Now, is that, <laughs> but does at what that point does it get too ridiculous yeah. that it can start being okay to retweet well, again? Well, my but... <laughs> thing is, I know there's people out there that really believe there are people, lizard people, running the government. But there are also there are people aliens out there who have infiltrated, and they but believe it's, that. It's such a great headline. You have at least got to go check it out and read it just for humor's right. sake, right? Yeah. But don't retweet it. And then Come everything on. on the side is about Sasquatch and other animals <laughs> of mythology. Right. You know, as like, soon eh. as you think it's too ridiculous, someone actually thinks it like. A certain king of rock being still alive, I think, right? I think we want – people want to believe certain things. They want to believe that maybe – especially if you're not a fan of Hillary Clinton. Right. They want to believe that she's a lizard or, person. Or you just toss it out because you don't like her. I can't even say that without laughing. Right. I know. It was one of the stories that were yeah. spread around. So. Oh. oh, well. It's it's something I think about every time I go to hit retweet. The other thing is what, what comments may come back. Yeah. If someone oh, sees yeah. that and they want to come back at me because I, I – so I don't even – who cares? Um, it's not worth the effort of trying to be part of a conversation. By right? the way, don't ever read comments. They make no. you feel really bad about yourself. I, I do sometimes because it's, sometimes it's funny, but you get about four into it and you're like, yeah, oh, You feel okay. like you this need to, exactly to repent Yeah. <laughs> after reading what what these idiots are saying. So th- Sorry. this is a problem at a state uh, park in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's true for many places across the country where they use the honor system to pay a fee, right? Yeah. So at this state park, to park there, they ask for $6. Yeah. And it's on the honor system if you pay it. Oh, no. Right? So they have and, – and I'll see it at like um, parking lots yeah, and different places like that where you pull in, you park, and then as you're walking out, oh, there's this board and there's numbers – and you go back and look, and oh yeah, I'm on like parking spot 26, and they want you to put three dollars in the little slot so that you yeah. pay for your parking. But there's no one there to take. Do they still do that? You have to there's, fold it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. You wad it in a little. Oh, yeah, and you slide it in. Yeah. So then the it's all on the honor system. You can just walk out. No one's going to know. No one's going to yeah. give you a ticket. They don't. There's no pass. They just want you to on on your honor do this. Well, this state park, they're finding that like 30 percent of the cars, no one does it. And wow. so they're trying to think of all these different reasons, and some of them is there's annual pass holders who are there who buy a pass and they have something hanging in the car and they just walk out. So they feel other people just pull in and they just follow people out and they don't think, oh, stop and pay, right? Yeah. Because they're just following somebody else who already parked and obviously they just parked, so why, why do I need to pay? They didn't sure. pay. Um, so they don't know about the other system. Or or then I mean, they're giving them a lot of benefit of the doubt. I think people are just walking out without paying because- no one's going to hold you accountable. Yeah. Right? So oh. do does the honor system actually work? I think it depends on the situation. I feel I really feel for those state parks because they have such limited resources mm-hmm. and funds and, and that's why they, they really rely the money, on that. Right? Yeah. And they don't have the manpower to to monitor the parking lots, you know? I don't know. The honor system doesn't <sighs> seem – it seems like you're putting a lot of uh, faith in humanity to do the well, right thing. I know several people here on, you know, locally at BYU who will um, just park wherever they want. Mm. They'll get a ticket and they just won't pay it and right. nothing really happens. Oh, wow. So not that you needed to know that. Yeah. 
But, uh, yeah, it is crazy. Unless it, you try to enroll at the school and they find out you have 50 tickets. And <laughs> I'm always fascinated to see how people would react in certain situations. You know, like if if the power went out, you see a lot of bad come out of people that end up, you know, there's a lot oh, of yeah. theft when that happens. Or, you, you know. You, you <sighs> eliminate Wi-Fi accessibility yeah. with the power going out. People lose their minds. They don't know what to yeah. do. They don't know how to cope. They don't know what to... How do I talk with my family at this point? I yeah. Mean, I don't and, have my phone to look through. And it's 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 not good to go around in life thinking negatively of people or thinking the worst of people that, oh, in this situation, people would just do all the wrong things. I just but... gave you two stories about human nature, <laughs> right? We're the retweeting is, the fake news and we're also not paying the honor system when we need to. One thing that I will say is, and I'm I am far from perfect, but one thing that I've tried to do is, you know, if you bump into somebody's car, mm-hmm. the right thing to do, obviously, get out a little note, write it, put it under the windshield, and good thing, I mean, karma is is a good thing. It will always go in your favor if you just do the right thing. I've had, I've been the person that has left several of those notes, mm-hmm. and I've never had to pay anything. Oh, the wow. person's either never contacted me, mm-hmm. I remember bumping into somebody at a, a stoplight when there was, the road was a little icy, they got out, looked at the car, they was like, you know what, there's not, there's, you can't even really see anything, and they just let me go. Oh, so, wow. doing good things, it always... It always pays off in the end to tell the truth. Most to do of the, time. the right thing. Yeah. If anything, <laughs> at it, least you can live with yourself. You're doing the right thing. You can live with yourself. Right. What, what the outcome is may vary, but you know, for the most part, people will meet you with your doing the right thing by hopefully doing the right thing right. back type of thing. So, so far, for me, it's worked out. And uh, when I haven't done the right thing, it usually has not. It backfires. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It usually backfires. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we're going to do the right thing and take a break here. I'm trying to insert as many cheesy, stereotypical radio segues and conversations as possible. And I just gave you a prime example of one. We're going to do the right thing and take a break. When we return, we're going to be talking about that topic that we teased earlier about what do you do when you just don't like the friends that your kids bring home and, and hang out with? It's going to be very helpful. Sean Grover, when we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away in beautiful Fresno, California. You know, it's no secret that uh, who your kid befriends matters a lot. Numerous studies have demonstrated that kids who associate with teenagers who adopt risky behaviors are much more likely to engage in those behaviors themselves. Furthermore, these friend choices can teach you a lot about your own kid. Here to teach us what to do when we disapprove of our kids' friends is psychotherapist and author Sean Grover. Sean's been on the show before. Sean, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. This is such an exciting subject. Oh, absolutely. And for me especially, because I my kids are starting to get older, and it's interesting because I'm in a very interesting situation because right now we live on a cul-de-sac where... We're kind of the young family on the block, and so there aren't even really a lot of options for friends for my kids in our neighborhood. So anytime 
we have a, a kid that wants to come over or invites our daughters to go over to their house, we jump on it. We don't even have to think all that much like, is this is this kid a bad influence? We're just thankful when our kids have an opportunity to play with some somebody else. But I am, I am aware of the fact that there is going to be a day when we need to start asking ourselves some of these questions and having these conversations. So I, I too, am very excited about this. So as our, as our kids get older, what do we do when our teens and our, our kids are hanging out with the wrong crowds? Right. Well, you haven't faced that yet, but you will eventually. You'll know intuitively as, as a parent when you see these kids, you'll think, oh, no, this yeah. is good. <laughs> uh, you'll see uh, lots of changes in behavior. Maybe a child becomes more aggressive. Maybe they never swore and they start swearing. Right. Maybe more defiant. Because kids have a hunger for role models. So uh, they will attach themselves to people they perceive as strong, but they don't have yet developed good judgment in terms of who they choose. Hmm. So why, why is it that they're gravitating towards some of these negative uh, influences or these, these negative friends? Is it they just want to be accepted? They, they think that's the cool kid, so I want to I be a part of that group? Well, that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, but I, I want to back up a second because uh, when I work with families and they come up with these situations or difficulties, there's just two words I always return to over and over again. What's missing? Yeah. What's missing from that kid's life? So there are specific activities uh, that you really want to look through for uh, to supply your kid with, really structured, creative activities. These would be sports teams, music art, theater, dance, internships, some sort of structured team-like uh, uh, program where they, have, they share similar goals. You're gonna, kids will naturally uh, find kids that are engaging in those programs are much less likely to be uh, under the bad friend category. So yeah. parents, if you can uh, start on that as soon as possible, uh, you'll find that hunger for attachments to friendships uh, to peer leaders, you want to make sure they're in the company of people that you want them to have that attachment to. And it seems like it's even more important when maybe the, you know, talking about adults, maybe they don't have the best adult role models in their lives. So it seems like those programs would be even more crucial then. Yeah, adult models uh, and uh, mentors, I've seen extraordinary things changes in children when an adult comes along who they look up to, uh, maybe idolize, and they begin to emulate. I've, I've seen uh, drug dealers become ballet dancers because of a mentor that entered their life and offered them wow. uh, more sense of self-respect. Yeah. So as a parent, and you mentioned this, I, I don't have this experience yet. My kids probably aren't at, at that age yet, but as a parent, how, how do you... How old are your kids? My, I've got a, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a nine-month-old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. So we have we we haven't had to deal with too much yet, but uh, I it's coming. I can there are little hints of it coming up. You know, um, sure. how does a parent find support to get help through uh, through a kid's adolescence? Right. Uh, well, I, it was a study I came upon uh, from the American Sociological Association that that you're not, Jeff. This is an amazing study. They studied nearly 12,000 children from 7th grade to 12th grade to predict 
to see what would what would uh, what quality what what do they have in their life that predicted a positive outcome in terms of grades and friendships? And they're specifically looking at a teen's choice of friends. The study was interested in. So of all these things, neighborhood, education, uh, bank account, you know what came out on top? I'm going to read a quote from this. We found, this is 12,000 kids, we found that the parent-child relationship, the quality of that relationship is consistently linked to the characteristic of the child's choice of friends. Really? Whew, can you believe that? That's scary. The teenagers, <laughs> the teenagers, <laughs> teenagers that report a good relationship with their parents had uh, friends who were less likely to be delinquent, more likely involved in extracurricular activities, had higher grade point averages, plans for college, the list goes on and on. So a lot of times, parents put a lot of energy into looking outside their family for answers or solutions. But really, the bedrock is to the core of those choices lies within the family, how the family communicates, the relationship between the parents. Do people listen? Do they validate each other? Under those conditions, kids will feel better about themselves, and kids who feel better about themselves make better choices. So you, you, one example you gave there was listening. How can I be a more effective listener to my kids? Okay. Uh, well, the three, let's, let's start with what you shouldn't do. The three least effective ways of uh, influencing your child's behavior is advice, criticism, and comparison. So those three things just put away. When I say this at a parenting workshop, parents say, well, I, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> you know, so listening is very simple, but it, it means taking time, most likely with making time for each individual child that each individual child gets your complete attention under different circumstances and has an equal part of the listening capacity of parents. The other thing, family meetings are a wonderful place to provide a framework for processing feelings that are upsetting or things that happen during the week. And children, believe it or not, uh, they, they may be dragged into these meetings, but I found in my work that they begin to crave them they may, instead of having, uh, they have something bad happen, they may put it on the list for the family meeting on Sunday afternoon to talk about. So now they have a place where they can process these feelings. But that's, that's really uh, something parents need to initiate and carry through on. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sean Grover, who is talking to us about what we can do when we don't like the friends that our kids bring home. And uh, a lot of it, I'm sure, has to do with with self-esteem. You mentioned that some of these are some of kids will turn to bad influences when there's something missing in themselves, you know, or they're having self-esteem issues. What what's something that we can do to strengthen our kids' self-esteem? Yes, that's that's an excellent question because a low sense of self-esteem is really a breeding ground for bad friend choices. So yeah, I, I like to request that every parent really focus on their child having three to five sources for self-esteem. That means there's something they feel they really are good at, either a sport, an instrument, writing, uh, any kind of creative force that they can uniquely feel they own. That, that really raises self-esteem in a kind of permanent way. Uh, people as adults look back, they may not remember gifts they've gotten or birthdays, but they'll remember something they did 
that they were proud of, and that stays with them throughout their life. So three to five sources. And also, I like three friends groups. That means your child has friends at school, and then they have their friends in the neighborhood. Unfortunately, you don't have that yet. Yeah. Uh, and then they have their friends, which are part of their family, which would be extended family, cousins, and so forth. So if any one of these friend groups gets a little shaky, they have the two others to support. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. Yeah. That's really what you want to look, look, look out for. Okay. So it's interesting because in your article, you mentioned how the advice that we're given as parents is just all over the place. You know, you get con- you get contradicting advice depending on who you're asking. And one thing that you talk about is uh, allowing your kids to be independent. But so how how do we allow our kids to be independent, but also set up limits? That's one of those things where it's it's tough to find a good balance. How do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, uh, it all comes down to the character of the child. Some children need more limits uh, than others. Some children, for example, with technology, technology may be just a part of their life and parents don't have to regulate it as much. Uh, and another child who has a lower self-esteem, not enough sources for self-esteem, friend group, technology devours them. So that child is going to need a lot more limits and a lot more uh, guidance from the parents. Finding that balance with your child is really a trial and error process. You always want to give the child a chance to prove themselves. And then if they mess up or they miss a curfew or they, they do something, you want to process that. You don't want to go right into punishment or being punitive, any of that, because it's the process of the feeling that really uh, inspires maturity. If you just come down as a punisher or an enforcer, Chances are your child's going to get better at lying, better at hiding things. So I really want parents to focus on the process and, as they go along, allowing a little bit more freedom, uh, seeing how they adapt to that. If it's too far, we have to pull back. But your, your child, especially in adolescence, is a bit of a collaborator on those limits. But they will demonstrate through their behavior when they need more limits. Yeah, yeah. So as a parent, you know, we all form certain expectations for our children. How do we manage those expectations for our children, and, uh, and how do we celebrate who they are? Yes, that's oh, so happy you said that. Celebrating who your child is is key, not who you want your child to be. Uh, I was speaking at an elementary school uh, in Manhattan a few weeks ago, and a parent raised their hand and said, what do you do when you have a child who isn't the child you expected. Yeah. <laughs> How do you even begin to that, answer that question? Uh, but celebrating your child's strengths, highlighting what they are doing right, highlighting uh, ways in which they're demonstrating maturity, that doesn't get enough uh, attention from most parents. Uh, they, they're really more, and I'm certainly guilty of this. I did it just the other day. I looked at my daughter's report card. I went right to the sea. I can't believe it was almost oh. all days. I went right to the sea. I violated all my own guidance. <laughs> and I felt so horrible after because her feelings were really hurt. So the kind of, I had to really always work on my own sense of mindfulness, not being impulsive, taking a reflective pause, making a decision on how I want to communicate. If I'm modeling this for my child, they're going to internalize that and take that with them into the world. That's the framework I'm providing. 
But if I'm critical or I, I run, focus right on that C and I want to know what happened in that clip, you know, I'm really doing damage because everyone is allowed to screw up. Everyone's allowed to make mistakes. And no child needs a parent celebrating that. They really need you to help them through it and examine what went wrong and help them process it. They have a lot of chaos going on inside them. And the parent really needs to be a, have a hand on the steering wheel and really help them and guide them through it. So, Sean, I, if if you don't mind, I want to ask you: How did you handle that situation? How do you, I mean, how do you celebrate all those really good grades, and uh, without showing disappointment, helping them improve the other grade that's not an A? That's right. Well, first you start with the good. Always start with the good. If yeah. a parent comes in my office. Uh, you, you start with, what is your kid doing right? When I ask that question, they, they almost always look sort of shocked. <laughs> because it's not <laughs> something that comes up, now. what are they doing right? Uh, and so we have to start with that. In terms of with my own situation, I, I didn't realize in the moment so much uh, what I had done until later I thought about, why didn't, I didn't like that conversation. I didn't feel good about that conversation. Something went wrong, and of course, I went wrong. And in revisiting it, kids love when you, teenagers especially love, when you admit your mistakes. Oh, my God, I love that. <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I revisited the conversation and, and corrected my wrongs, and my daughter was fine with that. Uh, but uh, just try that out on your kids. And you, had a bad, you know, I had a bad moment. I handled that wrong. I wish I had handled that differently. They'll look at you with sort of stunned uh, surprise, but you're also demonstrating to them that when they make mistakes, they can also correct them if they, uh, if they so choose. It's not, you're not doomed. That C does not doom my daughter's future or our relationship. Uh, yeah, and, and that's, not, that's not only relegated to, to teenagers, too. I mean, I've, even my six-year-old likes it when I admit that I'm wrong. I, she may not have the words to describe what is happening, but so if I'm wrong and I admit it, she'll, the way she describes it is, Daddy was being mean. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even at that early age, they seem to like it when you admit your faults. And uh, wow, yeah. Okay, so I'm curious to know, and these are two different questions based on you know where you're at in, with your family right now. So first, for me and people with younger children, what are some things that we can do now to prepare for when these conversations are going to creep up? We're going to start seeing more of these friends or more of these behaviors come home with our kids, whether it's you know swearing or talking back or acting negatively. What are, what are some things that we can do now to prepare for this? Okay. Well, let's make sure we have things in place, right? We have those structured, creative activities, the sports and music and so forth, extracurricular activities are in place. Uh, they've got positive role models, positive peer models. Family communication is, uh, is, is something that's tended to regularly through family meetings. So if we have all that and these friends sort of drift into the picture, it's very important that you establish what is the culture in your family? In our family, we don't curse at each other. At Charlie's house, they may do that, but we don't do that here. In our family, so you're constantly putting boundaries between uh, how other children may choose to behave 
that's their business, but in our family, this is how we treat each other. And constantly restructuring and pointing back to that so the child doesn't feel like they uh, are being punished, but everyone has a different sort of family culture. So um, at a crucial moment, you know, this is really a, a family really communicates a life philosophy. And at a crucial moment, that philosophy will appear in a child's life. Uh, for example, I had a, a dad who um, came in, and he was always bragging about how he cheated on his taxes and how he got over on his boss. And he was at family dinners, he was constantly parading these, these achievements mm. in front of his kids. And then he offered his son, uh, if he scored high on the state exams, he would pay him, right? Yeah. Culture of this family. Well, that son was caught cheating on the state exam. Oh. It had a devastating effect. And he was, father was furious and came in my office. And I said, Alan, he's just doing what you taught him to do. And no, most parents will fire me at that point. <laughs> they, they don't want to hear it. But really, how we're modeling, that is the express lane to how children will manage these friendships and manage these feelings. And also sharing your own experiences. It's, it's a, also in terms of making mistakes, saying, I had a friend once who made me feel so bad, really hurt my feelings. I couldn't believe they were my friend. Did that ever happen to you? And then, so you're, now you're setting the tone that you're in this with them. And they'll begin to say, hey, I didn't like the way so-and-so was treating me. What happened? And we're processing. We're focusing on processing. We're not trying to fix the problem. We're helping the child process their feelings so they make better decisions. If we just fix the problem, we're not really giving them the tools to move forward in life. As they, go, as they get older, relying on your parents becomes less attractive. So we really want to build in those tools as early as possible. Yeah. So, Sean, just in closing here, now talking about uh, parents with teenagers, if you could tell them one piece of advice today, what would that be? Mm, one piece of advice for teenagers. I would have to go with the, uh, the positive creative structures. Uh, every, every child, if I go into a parenting workshop and ask, who, as a teenager, when you were a teenager, who saved your life? Who was the adult that changed everything for you? Hands go up immediately, and people remember the names. Mr. Pagano, my music teacher. Mrs. Singleton, my literature teacher. What, so these role models had such an impact on people. If you can find those for your kids, if you can locate them and harvest the energy of that role model, that, to me, has the single greatest impact on a child's future. Well, Sean Grover, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show and all the tips and ideas that you've left with us here today. His name is Sean Grover. He is a psychotherapist. He's an author and a speaker with 25 years' experience helping parents fend off nervous breakdowns, including his own. And uh, go check out his most recent book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again. It was named Best New Nonfiction from Publishers Weekly. Go check it out. When we return, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show with a little MT News.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just uh, finished speaking with Sean Grover, who was giving us some tips on what to do when you hate your kids' friends. And a lot of it just starts with your own behavior and your relationship with your with your kids. And uh, a, another big part is getting your kids in programs that are going to be uplifting, that are going to help them adopt positive behaviors and be exposed to positive role models, whether those are their peers or whether those are the coaches and teachers. So get to work. There's a lot of work to be done. I know that's that's true in my own household as well. And I uh, really appreciated the honesty that of Sean Grover, too. He, he was uh, quick to admit some of his mistakes and I, it's it's good when we can do that because we can all learn from those mistakes. Anyway, as promised, we're going to get some empty news here now. And we've been teasing all morning how Elvis is back. We've been finally acknowledging that Elvis has always been back. So he never left. Right. And apparently now he is running for an Arkansas congressional seat. He's got my vote <laughs> from Arkansas. So Elvis Presley officially running for a congressional seat in Arkansas, but don't confuse him with the rock and roll icon unless he's performing. Elvis D. Presley performs shows as the late superstar Elvis A. Presley, but he's also now filed to run as the Libertarian nominee challenging Arkansas Republican Representative Rick Crawford. Both men filed paperwork Monday to run for the 1st Congressional District in eastern Arkansas. Crawford has represented the area for four terms. Presley has previously run for Arkansas governor, land commissioner, and the state legislature. The Libertarian Party selected its nominees at a convention over the weekend. The one-week filing period for state and federal office in Arkansas ends Thursday. So, wow, we tricked you a little bit. Obviously, <laughs> Elvis A. Presley is not running for office, but Elvis D. Presley. Your little story doesn't mention any relation in there? No, no. But it's Presley interesting. Presley is not a common name. Let me ask you something. So it mentions in the story here how he actually sounds like he moonlights as an Elvis Presley I don't know if it's an impersonator or just a basically a cover band. Okay. Do you think when somebody shares the name with a famous celebrity or political figure, do you feel like there's some sort of obligation to try to follow in that person's footsteps or to perform as that person? I think I think there's a lot of people that assume and rightly so that because my name is Simpson I must love The Simpsons, which I do. I don't really watch any of the newer episodes, but I do go back and watch some of the older episodes. Do you feel like you there is an obligation? You could still have another child and name them either Bart or Lisa <laughs> or Maggie. Now, that I did, potential still lies. I've mentioned this several times on the program, but my grandmother's name, may she rest in peace, is actually Marjorie Simpson. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you think there's an obligation there? I think it could be... Fun. I think that if you take it in good spirits, it's nice. There is an actor currently in the blockbuster film Black Panther by the name of Michael B. Jordan, who I'm waiting for the day where he does a Michael Jordan biopic about the basketball player. Oh, yeah. They don't look really much alike at all, um, but 
he's still Michael Jordan playing Michael Jordan. I think that would be great. You've really got to hand it to the people that decide, you know what? This is my name. I'm not going to add an initial. I'm not going to change it or go by Mike. You, I re, you really got to hand it to them. Mm-hmm. It can be gutsy in some circumstances. I mean, so. there have got to be a lot of Michael Jacksons in the world. Michael is one of the most common, and Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. Michael is one of the most common first names in America. And so when you have famous people yeah. that have that name and then a relatively common last name, they have to be out there. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Adding that initial can actually be quite effective because I did not even make that connection until you just mentioned that. I was aware of Michael B. Jordan mm-hmm. or whatever, but maybe I'm just not into sports as much as you are. Maybe I mean, that's part of it. Michael Jordan is probably the most well-known sports person well, I'm, I'm of very, the last 50 I'm very familiar years, with him, but that extra initial in there just – it totally – distracted me from the fact that they share the same name. Makes him a different person. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> so one more here before we uh, we take a break. <sighs> Don't get revenge. We've talked about this time and time again. <sighs> but this one... We'll talk it, th- about it this again. Guy just, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about it one more time. This guy took it way too far. A Florida man is accused of setting his neighbor's Corvette on fire... Because he Why? suspected them of stealing his lawnmower. Yep. That's logical. Wow. So You always got to have a reason. This is in Edgewater, Florida. Police said they were called to a home around 11 p.m. Tuesday in reference to a vehicle fire. A man who was home at the time of the fire said he saw his neighbor, Brandon Rivera, set his roommate's – it's his roommate <laughs> – roommate's red 1984 Chevrolet Corvette on fire, according to the affidavit. The car belongs to a married couple who lives at the home. Police said they spoke to Rivera and he told them that he suspected he suspected the couple of stealing things from him, including his lawnmower. Doesn't even sound like he had proven. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah. Oh, don't do it, folks. Don't set your roommates or your neighbors or anybody's property on fire. Not even if they maybe might have possibly allegedly stolen. Right. Even if you have proof that they did, (laughs) just find another way to resolve the issue amicably. Anyway, when we return, we're going to give you a tease of what's coming up on screen cleaning in the 9 o'clock hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we may not have spoken a whole lot about the Oscar ceremony leading up to the Oscar ceremony, but we are going to do an Oscar ceremony post-mortem, if you will. And we're going to be covering because some... the Oscars are dead. <laughs> that may be an issue. That may be something that's uh, brought up in our discussion of the Oscars. We're going to be talking about some of our big beefs or our big our big beef with the Oscars. And uh, some of the snubs we feel like uh, were very present and we're also – or not present, I guess. Certain movies get looked over. Yeah. Every year it happens. And then um, we're also going to be sharing some of the winners who maybe maybe they won for the wrong part or maybe it was just a consolation prize. Mm-hmm. Very interesting discussion coming up. We're also going to be talking with our good friend Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, who's about going... a movie that I have not seen. <sighs> you, you've got to rub, you've got to rub it in that I ruined your Thursday night and didn't allow you to go see 
A Wrinkle in Time, which currently has a lower than hoped for score on Rotten Tomatoes. I am still going to go enjoy it at some point. Yeah. I just didn't go last I night. Think, I think if we've learned anything in our discussions of Rotten Tomatoes is you kind of have to take those ratings with a grain of salt. But a lot of times those ratings are spot on. <laughs> anyway, that's coming up next here on The Matt Townsend Show as we entertain you with screen cleaning. We'll be right back. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here by Cole Wissinger, as always, and a special guest on today's show, Sean O'Neill, who is one of our fabulous uh, movie reviewers. And I'm curious to know, Sean, before we head over to Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, did you see the film A Wrinkle in Time? Yep. You did? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it'll be interesting to get your take on this. I know we didn't tell you about that, so we're putting you on the spot here a little bit. But uh, on the phone right now, we have our good friend Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews. And before we get to him, let me just give you a little preview of what's coming up on the show. We're going to be talking about A Wrinkle in Time. We're also going to be doing our Oscars post-mortem. And there may be some disagreements here But nothing new. Cole and I have never agreed on any movie or movie discussion of any kind, and yet we're still good friends. In fact, earlier on the show today, Cole said, you know what, Jeff? If you want to give me a hug, I would let you give me a hug. I was floored by that. Wow. This is unprecedented. Um, And it's really a step in the right direction. Not that we've had a bad relationship, but this just shows me that – that he thinks that way, too, that even though we disagree on everything and sometimes not even just movies, we're still friends. It's true. That means a lot to me, Cole. So what makes the show great, Jeff. Well, yeah, I think so. So uh, Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews and Sean O'Neill, I am so excited to talk to both of you about the film A Wrinkle in Time. Maybe not for the reasons that you'd be expecting, because I'm just excited this movie is finally out, so I never, ever have to see a trailer for A Wrinkle in Time again. <laughs> now, I'm not nothing to say, not to say anything bad about A Wrinkle in Time, but you have to sympathize with me a little bit because I've seen a lot of movies lately, and every movie that I've gone to has shown this trailer for A Wrinkle in time and I'm, I'm just done i'm done with the trailer that's 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 the con of buying movie pass yes absolutely so rod welcome to screen cleaning hey hi guys you know i get that trailer thing and in fact i can't remember what trailer um i saw just the other day for a movie that's opening at christmas and then the first thing that comes across my mind is oh no i'm going oh i get that Rod, Rod, we're we're having a hard time hearing you. Are you you driving in a car or something? Uh, well, yeah, at the moment, but I should. Can you hear me now? That's a little better. Yeah. So okay. while while we've got a good connection with you, I want to get your take yeah. on a wrinkle in time. What is it that that we should know going into this, especially if we have younger kids? And there's there's so few kids movies out these days. I I feel my I I have to wait for these long periods of time before I can take my kids to another movie. Is this one that I can take them to? You know, yes. The short answer is yes, definitely. You know, as far as 
as far as concerns that we would have with a wrinkle in time when it comes to, you know, is this suitable for your kids and that type of thing, no, it's, it, there's really not a whole lot in this movie that's going to be a problem for family viewing. Um, and I, I still, you can still hear me okay, correct? Uh, for yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. All right, that's good. I decided to check before I go into part two. The part two is for for people who have read the book, at least the people I know who have read the book, like my wife and kids, it's been really a disappointment in that way. And uh, and aware of what's in most of the book, because this was a popular book in our family when our kids were younger, and, and my wife read it to them. And... Uh, and it really is, it's almost like they've taken something that was written at a certain period of time and they've re-engineered it to kind of match what would be, I guess, the political correctness priorities of today. Rod, Sean is nodding his head right now. It sounds like he's in total agreement with you there. Total agreement, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that, Sean, I don't know, it sounds like then we're on the same page because I know, for me, I went into this, you know, I went into this, first of all, with real high expectations because her family loves the book so much. But, uh, yeah, it really, uh, the other thing I found watching the film, there were moments in there that I know I should have been crying, and I just wasn't. It was like, why isn't this? <laughs> and, in fact, I've said this many times watching movies. I get really angry when they start crying in a movie that's just manipulating me and I'm crying and I'm thinking this is a crummy movie but it's making <laughs> me cry and in this case this movie was a disappointing movie that couldn't even manipulate me that way so you know that's how it came across for me Rod this is this you've sparked a great idea that I have for one of the upcoming shows to have kind of a confessional and list movies in which we've <laughs> cried, and that maybe we shouldn't have cried during. So, Sean, you you seem to agree with what Rod's saying about A Wrinkle in Time. Well, yeah, I actually read the book the week before I saw the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. So the book was really fresh in my mind, and it's it. I understand. <laughs> I understand. You know, not being able to put everything from a book into a movie, but I I, I was so disconnected with the the Mrs. characters. It just yeah. they just didn't. Are those were, the Reese those, Witherspoon and Oprah Reese, Winfrey? Reese Witherspoon, Oprah Winfrey, and uh, Mindy Kaling. Yeah, there's just no backstory to those characters in this movie, and in the book you get backstory from them. Okay, and it's and 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 I'm sorry, Oprah, if you if you really want to be on the screen, then don't play Mrs. Witch. Play one of the other misses ah. because in the book Mrs. Witch hardly ever is in is visible. Now, Sean, you may not get the backstory, but we do get the Barbie dolls. The toys that go along with it yeah, is that I'm enough? Sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah, Rod, you've 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 pegged this movie. So really quickly, what's a synopsis of this film? And Rod, what grade did you give it? And Sean, what grade did you give it? Well, basically, what the synopsis of the film is is there's this young girl. Her name is Meg, and uh, she's a middle school aged uh, child. And her father has been working on this really cool theory that he thinks that you can, he's trying to figure out how you can travel across the universe faster than the speed of light. In other words, instantly, which is kind of cool because if you check some of our discussion questions, we've got some links to some of the actual theories of this and the actual physics. So I love that part of it. Anyhow, one day the guy disappears 
and uh, and they can't find him, and they don't know where Dad is, and so they've kind of given up finding him. And and but Meg hasn't. Meg still believes that he's alive somewhere, and she's going to find him. So so that's basically it's her adventure along with her very younger her younger brother Charles Wallace, who is an absolute genius, who comes along with her as well, and and he gets involved in the story too. And and it's really a good versus evil story as they start making this journey across the universe to other planets. Everything else. There's a dark side and and all of that type of thing as well. It's a very it's it's a very common archetype that that I feel interesting. This book was banned and has been for years in many schools because it's anti-religious. I feel the opposite. I I, I know the original story. I think the intent was to marry religion and science together, and how the two of them kind of go can go hand in hand. They don't have to be enemies, and so that's basically. What happens through the story is Meg goes along with her brother. And so what grade did you give it on uh, Parent Previews? So, you know, we gave this one the, the honorary B-minus Parent Previews grade. And the B-minus, it, it, it isn't reflective. Well, I guess it is reflective that there's very little content in this movie that's concerning. There's some bullying and that type of thing. But, you know, really, there's there's no profanity. There's no sexual content, really. There's, uh, you know, no drug and alcohol use, that type. So this is a very clean movie. It's a PG. But just really disappointing, I think, for a lot of uh, kids that they're really going to be confused. So parents, go read the book. That that would be the, the far better thing to do with your time. Okay. And so, Sean O'Neill, how about you? What'd you give it? I actually gave it a B. Okay. Only because I know family – I think it's fairly good family entertainment because of the reason that it is clean. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you've read the book, I think you're going to be disappointed. So see the movie first, mm-hmm. then read the book. Okay. All right. But it's, it's still it's, uh, – I think they tried to be too scientific and too uh, special effect-ish. Yeah, I guess with yeah. the movie rather than just just going with the the gut of the story that is in the book, and and Absolutely. actually, the, yeah, the book is the book is very influenced by science. Uh, Madeline Lengel, who wrote the book, was a, she was a very avid reader, and she was reading scientific you know books, yeah, about uh, about all of this stuff, and then wrote a story to go along with it, and and it's a fantastic story. All right, and then there's actually five books. Are you serious? I didn't series. know that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, like I said, there are so few options when it comes to kids' movies, and I was hoping that uh, it was going to be a little better than than I was expecting it to be because it's even harder to find good kids' movies. But uh, Rod Gustafson, we really appreciate your time as well as you, Sean O'Neill, and we're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to be talking about our, our – we're going to be doing our Oscars – post-mortem, if you will. And uh, Sean O'Neill and Rod Gustafson seem to agree on A Wrinkle in Time, but I don't know if Cole and I are going to agree on everything that's coming up in this discussion here in just a few minutes on Screen Cleaning. Well, the big ceremony has come and gone, and now all we can do is look back and reflect upon what has happened and what could have been. 
And we're talking, of course, about the 2018 Oscar ceremony hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. The big winner of the night, of course, was The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture and Best Director. And then uh, we read in the news that Guillermo del Toro announced that he's divorcing his wife. So a lot is going on in his life right now. Uh, some other big winners. Dunkirk won three awards. All the awards, awards that... Uh, yeah, thank you, Cole. And Get Out won for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri picked up a couple of Oscars. Best Actress, as we know, her award was stolen momentarily or temporarily. Yeah, she, she didn't pick it up. For- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Sam Rockwell for Best uh, Supporting Actor. Gary Oldman won his, how a lot of people think, long overdue Oscar, even though he's only been nominated twice. But that was an amazing performance. It really was. Cole, you still haven't seen it. It, it is a performance to check out, for sure. It's not not just Gary Oldman rolling around in a fat suit. He does no, a little no, bit of acting. No, 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 no. And I wouldn't okay, say rolling okay, around. Okay, <laughs> No. But, uh, yeah, so, um, uh, okay, and this is going to lead well into... Our first discussion topic of this post-mortem for the Oscars ceremony. Because the Oscars are dead. (laughs) Yes, and we're going to talk about our biggest beef with the Oscars. Mm -hmm. And one thing I couldn't shake the entire ceremony was, and I appreciated some of the bits. I enjoyed Jimmy Kimmel's uh, let's keep these speeches short and whoever does the shortest speech gets this jet jet ski. ski. Helen Mirren not included. (laughs) Darn and it. yeah, <laughs> and I would also love to have lunch with her. Actually, a, yeah, that would, be, that would be fabulous. A lake or a, a lake, lake Havasu, Havasu trip, mm-hmm. and the well, person you got to have a. You can't do it in California because California has outlawed jet skis. Yeah, so you have to go to Arizona. So the biggest winner of the night, as Jimmy Kimmel joked, was actually the costume designer for Phantom Thread, who won not only the, the Oscar but he won the jet ski yeah, exactly and the trip because he gave a thirty-six second. Acceptance speech, which us as viewers uh, very much appreciated. Well, you knew no actor was going to win that jet ski. Oh, no way. No. Although I I love – if you have time, go look up shortest Oscar speeches in history. And Joe Pesci, I think, is one of the shortest. Mm. And I'll be mentioning another one later on in the show. He gets up, gets his Oscar for Goodfellas Uh and uh, says, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Walks off the stage. Sweet. That's all he says. You know, you can see – Every single uh, acceptance speech on Oscars.org. Oh, my goodness. There is a database there of acceptance speeches. Yeah. Now, you know, some of them obviously weren't filmed, but they have text. Right. Yeah. Some people weren't even allowed to pick up their Oscars uh, because of their color way back in the day. That is true. Very sad. Um, Not even allowed to attend the ceremony. So my biggest beef was... While watching the Oscars, it was almost like I was going off— Is it just this this Oscar show or the Oscars in general? The past decade at least where I'm just mentally going off doing this checklist in my mind, okay? That's who was going to win that. Yep, no surprise there, no surprise there. That's my biggest beef with the Oscar ceremony. No surprises. And I think a big reason for that is because there are so many other award ceremonies that precede the Oscars— there really there are no surprises when the Oscars show up. The only surprise to me, the only thing, the only category that was a nail biter for me was in the category of Editing. best original song. 
I didn't know oh, if it yes. was going to go to This Is Me or if it was going to go to the well-deserved, the one that I hoped uh, and was really pulling for was Remember Me from the film Coco. And uh-huh. uh, that's my biggest beef. No surprises. Like, you, if you do any reading online, if you do watch any of the other shows, you know who's going to win in pretty much every category, and that's exactly what happened. So that takes out the excitement. So you have to kind of hope and pray for a, a La La Land situation where there's a mix-up mm-hmm. in the biggest category of the <laughs> night, right? See, now that was an exciting Oscar ceremony, but not on but not purpose. not until the end. Yeah, not until the end either, right? <laughs> there is math that goes into predicting these things. So like you said, with the SAGs and the PGAs and the independent spirit, you can look and calculate. And mathematicians and statisticians, kids, it's a great career to go into. You can do anything (laughs) with it. Um, Statistics can predict. And with these Oscars particularly, of the categories that they had enough data to predict, they were 14 out of 15 on predicting the Oscars. Yeah. So, Cole, what's your biggest beef with the Oscars? My biggest beef is that no one is watching anymore. Mm. So I watch the Oscars every year. I care about this and I enjoy memorizing what won the best picture from, you know, 1977 or whatever. Yeah. But not the viewership has gone down steadily. And do you think that's the 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 length of time or do you think it's So I've thought about length of time and that was almost my biggest beef, but then I actually went back and looked at the length of Oscars, uh, the ceremonies in the past, and I went back Every single Oscar ceremony has been over three hours mm-hmm. until 1973. You have to go back that far. was the last time we wow. had an Oscars on television that was less than three hours. They've <laughs> wow. always been this long. This is not a new beef for well, people yeah. to have I mean, with the first The Oscars. Oscar show, they gave away, what, two awards? <laughs> so, yeah, as we go back and yeah. back, there was no animated exactly. feature back then. Oh, yeah. Cinematography was a different category oh, back then. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's your biggest beef. No one's watching. No one's watching. Sean, how about you? I know the reason why no one's watching. Okay. The Oscars are too political. Ah. Especially I'm, this year. I'm sorry. I Holy don't, cow. I don't tune into the Oscars to watch a, um, a, a you know, a, 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 <laughs> a, a party convention. Right. I'm not, I'm not there to, to see the politics. I don't. Your acceptance speech at the Oscars is not going to sway my vote or or exactly, especially since nobody's watching. Exactly, that speech isn't going to be heard. <laughs> so that's that's just my beef with the Oscars. I I don't like the political speeches. I understand that people you know are it's it's the one. I mean, there's so many places nowadays that you can put your message out there. Put it out there. Yeah, you're. Fi- I don't. I don't mind you putting out a message. It used but... to be that the Oscars was these actors' time exactly. in the sunlight, yes. and they can actually get their message out there. We follow all these people on Twitter anyway. Exactly. We know where they stand. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. don't need to make it clear for us well, in, that, on TV. And that's why the acceptance speech doesn't need to be a minute and a half long. Right. You can do a Joe Pesci. And the thing is, they've already won so many other awards. They've already thanked all those people. Mm-hmm. They've already made some of those similar comments. You yeah, know? Exactly. Okay. So it's you not guys like we is... don't know where they stand on some of these exactly. things. In you guys' yeah. mind, when was the golden age for the Oscars? What, any, we have all any these year thieves, that Billy right? Crystal hosted. Oh, yes. yes. So, oh, yes. Billy Crystal hosting See, is, now that's entertaining. is a great production. Right. I did some research for you on that. Okay. So – did you know that viewership-wise, because no one's watching them for all of these myriad of reasons, yeah. viewership-wise, 
the last three years of Oscars have been in the bottom five in ratings since the Nielsen was reliable back in like the mid 80s or so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are more TVs and more houses than ever before, and yet the past three years are in the bottom five. Of the mm-hmm. top five watched, Billy Crystal has one, three, and five. Wow. And between 1990 and 2002, Billy Crystal hosted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Yeah, he hosted eight a bunch. Times. So mm-hmm. you're, you're saying maybe it's got to do with the host. Maybe it's got to do with something host. to do with I don't host with the most. I was, I was entertained by Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, but, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but he's no Billy Crystal. No, he's not. But but his style is so different than Billy Crystal's. True. I understand the difference. Yeah. I I liked the little uh, thing at the very beginning that he did. Oh yeah. With his with his his sweet announcer voice from the 1940s. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I just thought that was cool. Okay. Well, thanks for doing that research, Cole. I he is my favorite Oscar host, though. Oh, of Billy all Crystal. Time. Yeah, De- definitely. Um, okay, so now we want to talk about because one of my biggest beefs from last year's ceremony is that La La Land did not win Best Picture. Sorry. And one thing that we want to talk about now is forgotten winners because winning the Oscar is not the it's not the end all be all of your career. It could be it could a lot of celebrities have gone on record saying that this killed my career uh-huh. and. Now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna share my best picture choice that uh, is I would consider a forgotten winner. Okay. Do you know anybody that still talks about Driving Miss Daisy today? No, but I still love that movie. Okay, and that not to say anything about Driving Miss Daisy, but look at the films that lost out to it. But I think people, the only reason people talk about it would be for Morgan Freeman. Yeah. And he didn't Even, win that year either. He, but Jessica Tandy did. Right, right. So it lost – or Driving Miss Daisy beat out Dead Poet Society, yep. which has always been one of my favorites, and Field of Dreams, mm-hmm. which is another very solid film. And so a lot of people mm-hmm. criticize Driving Miss Daisy as, as being kind of a watered down uh, – trying to take a really difficult topic and watering it down. They bit. use Do the Right Thing as an example of a film that wasn't even nominated that yeah. same year, but yeah. we won't talk about that. But uh, one th- I, I did bring up La La Land, and that was my big B from last year. I'm predicting – I'm going to make a prediction here on the show that years from now, people will not be talking about the film that won last year, Moonlight. In fact, a lot of people are not talking about it anymore. Yep. Um, but people will continue to watch and talk about the film La La Land. That's due to popularity, not due to the fact that it won an Oscar. Right. Yeah. And so that's another thing. I mean, <sighs> and how, okay, but how many screens was Moonlight on around the country? And it, I think, and it, what was Moonlight rated? Yes, true. A lot less viewership for that because of those factors. I think. Oh yeah. And so that's another little beef I have with the Oscars is you have nine movies up for Best Picture, but how many people have seen all nine movies? Now exactly. I'm betting everybody in the room. There has probably seen them. Mm-hmm. That's their that's their career. That's their chosen. Yeah, you know, they go and see these movies. They get sent free screeners for yeah. these movies, so they vote on them. Yeah, so that the studios can make more money. Yeah, but we as a public out here in distant land, not La La Land, 
<laughs> we don't get to see we don't get to see all of those. Exactly. And Cole, he actually when we were planning this show, he did a little more research because a lot of these best picture winners are movies that are either being forgotten or they're just not crowd pleasing, they're not uplifting, they're not movies like you said that people are going to see. Right. So Cole, what would you say was the last year that we saw one of those films that was just a real cl- uh, real crowd pleaser? In 1997, Uh the at the time biggest box office movie of all time was Titanic. Yep. And then Titanic went to the Oscars in 98, and it won Best Picture, and Mm -hmm. it won for quite a few other things. I think Celine Dion also won for Best Song. So Titanic kind of dominated the Oscars, and also in 1998, the movies from 1997, we have the Best viewed. I told you I looked up who was watching the Oscars. Yeah. The 1998 Oscars had the best Nielsen rating of all time. That's not surprising because, because Titanic. Titanic yep. was the best viewed it movie. It was up for of 11 Oscars, if I remember right, and won like eight. a good bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, just look at some of the best picture winners over the last decade, even. You've got. Uh, the last year, last year was Moonlight. You've got Twelve Years a Slave. Yep. You've got The Hurt Locker, which virtually nobody saw. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I mean, and these are not films that are—they're clearly not crowd pleasers, and they're not one of them is really an uplifting film. In a traditional sense, anyway. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be uplifting to be best picture. I, that, no, I don't think that's a requirement. No, but I mean, if you, well, I think a point I'm trying to make is, and it's no secret that these are not films that audiences either love or well, are going to see. But also, the Oscars are not a popularity contest. No, they well. In some ways they are, but they – I mean, look who's voting for the Oscar. Who votes mm-hmm. for the Oscars? The mm-hmm. people in the academy. Right. Not the public. Right. It's, it's just interesting. People, it's not the people's choice. Of it's just we have beef with the Oscars, if we're trying to like help them get more people to tune in and watch them, having more movies that people have seen should be the way. And in 2009, when they expanded the pool to, to up to 10 yes. uh, Best Picture winners, the idea was to get more just normal people kind mm-hmm. of movies in yep. there. And that was in direct response to my favorite personal forgotten winner, yes. right? Uh, Slumdog Millionaire won okay. the Oscar in 2008 yeah. when The Dark Knight was not even nominated. Ooh, I knew you were going to bring that. Th- that's why I didn't put it on my list. It's one of see, my, have, it is possibly have, my favorite movie of all time. I don't see why The Dark Knight should have been nominated. Really? It's not oh. just a comic book movie. It is a truly great wow. movie. It is a great movie. Just because it's not Oscar-y? I, I, I agree. But I, I don't know that it should have been nominated. <laughs> I'm just saying that because Cole the phone? I, no, yeah. That's Jeff's crickets for what It is interesting. <laughs> so you you did – I was waiting for somebody to bring this up. The fact that uh, so many people felt that way that they started creating – they started – you mm-hmm. started seeing more films that were – Crowd pleasers like The mm-hmm. Blind Side. The very was next year, yeah. they started to include Avatar, which was the new best Inception. Box officer Inception thing. was nominated, ended mm-hmm. up yep. being nominated yep. for best picture. And you had like weird sci-fi things like District Nine get in, and then all of a sudden yeah. you start getting animated movies like Up and Wally that get well, nominated right. also yeah, they, when they animated movies weren't for, getting. But they got nominated for well, 2001 was the first animated uh, Oscar field. Yeah. And Up did win for Best Animated. And I believe it was but it also, also got it in for Best Picture because we expanded to nine 
I want to say Up was also... I don't think an animated will ever win Best Picture. Probably not. Uh, I think Up was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay as well. Possibly. Mm -hmm. And it was well-deserved. Anyway, okay, so your pick is The Dark Knight. How about you, Sean, for for Forgotten Winners? Uh, Mine comes from... uh, Let's listen to a soundbite really really quickly. Well, it's just music, but... Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you name the movie? This is going back. Yeah. This is The Sting. Very good. Do you know what year it won Best Picture? Oh, it would have been 60-something. Oh, no, no. Seven, oh, 70-something. I'm 1973. Sorry. 73. Yes. One of my favorite movies of all time. And and I say, I and I talk to people about this movie, and they're like, what? what is that? <laughs> Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And, yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is a great movie. I love this this story of of two grifters who get uh, one of, one of their friends is killed and so they decide to get back at the guy who who uh, runs the gang and, and it's just a it's just Roy Scheider right it, yes Roy Scheider yeah but it builds over the whole movie and then no and no, no then I'm sorry a, Robert Shaw Robert Shaw Robert yes, Shaw Robert Shaw but that and then there is a it has one of the best twists at the uh, M Night Shyamalan. Needs to watch this movie and 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 reinvent the twists in his movies. But you feel like people have forgotten this film. I do. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And it's PG. Well, it, yeah, it is. Although there is some. Uh, I mean, this is pre PG thirteen, sure. obviously. But yeah. there is some language in it, and um, and you know, it's a gangster movie. Yeah. So there's some violence, but yeah. I like that. So let's take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about some of the snubs. We've talked about some of the some of the films that have won, but now let's talk about some of the films that didn't win or weren't even nominated. We'll do that when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. Everything is not always awesome on the Academy Awards. Oh, you brought back so many bad memories. In the movie, the Lego movie, everything is awesome. And we're going to reference that here in just a minute. (laughs) All I can hear is my kids in the back of the car. (laughs) (laughs) But right now, we're actually going to talk about some of the snubs, some of the people that didn't win and probably should have or should have at least gotten a nomination, right? So I'll go through my list real quick. This is one of the most recent ones. It's a travesty in my in my mind uh, that Sylvester Stallone did not win for the movie Creed. He lost to Mark Rylance. Now, Mark Rylance gave a very subtle, nuanced performance in the film Bridge of Spies. He really didn't do any campaigning, which is kind of a big no-no when you want to win an Oscar. And yet he still came out on top. I thought this was it should have gone to Sylvester Stallone because This is a character that he has played repeatedly over many, many decades, and it was really the best performance in this character that he gave, more nuanced and more subtle than any of his others. Um, because he didn't shout "Yo, Adrian!" or uh, there was no Adrian to shout to. Yeah, um, or nothing is over. You know, the things of that nature. And it was it was such a shame because it would have been. It would have been the story that Rocky deserved. Mm-hmm. I really felt that way, and I was really disappointed when he didn't win. Um, looking in the best animated feature category, Happy Feet beat out a little film called Monster House, 
which is a fantastic animated film. Not really. What was, what was the other film nominated that year? Cars. Cars. Yeah. Which means and it actually Happy beat Feet Pixar. <laughs> Happy Feet was very preachy. Oh, very. And I tried watching for, it for, recently. and But I, only the second half of the uh, – first half of the movie of Happy Feet – Wonderful movie. Yeah, fun. You're but, tapping and dancing. And, but yeah. then you get the, the message of the movie, and it's like, why? Yeah. And, I mean, if even if Monster House would have won, it would have been on my list of forgotten winners because nobody talks about Monster House, which is a shame because it's such That's a true. good film. Such a good film. Um, now, here is on my list of that wasn't even nominated. We just played uh, Everything, Everything is, is Awesome, awesome and we're gonna, I'm going to reference that later on, but... It wasn't even nominated for Best Animated Feature. And this was in a year... It should have been. It not only should have been nominated, it should have won that year. I thought it was the best animated feature of that year by far. And it wasn't even nominated. It came out the same year as Cars? No, no, no. no. I'm sorry. This is this oh. is a different. This is this We're is fast forwarding films, through time. Now. Okay. Films that sorry. weren't nominated. Okay, and Cole won't agree with me on this one, but I really felt that Tom Hanks should have been nominated for his portrayal of Captain Phillips in the film Captain Phillips. Mm-hmm. I felt that was a very e- powerful and emotional uh, portrayal of this character who had been through such a- an emotionally and uh, really scary ordeal. And when he cries at the end of the film because he's finally able to to let out these emotions that he's been feeling the whole time, this emotional release, I was getting emotional. I, I mm-hmm. It was the... I remember feeling when I saw this movie, this is the one time where I felt like I was sharing the emotions of that character that I had just watched okay. for the last two hours. So I felt that was deserved. Um, I was a little disappointed Love the film Love and Mercy didn't get a single nomination where I felt it could have been nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Editing, Best Screenplay. It's the best biopic I have ever seen. And, Cole, can you play a clip of another uh, – Snub. This is the song Faith from the movie Sing, oh, performed yeah. by Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. To me, if you're gonna if you're gonna nominate a happy peppy song like Happy, this one to me is even better than Happy because it not only does it make you happy, but it makes you want to get up out of your seat and start dancing. And who doesn't love Stevie Wonder? He didn't write it, so I don't know that technically he would have gotten the nomination, but I still feel Faith should have been nominated for Best Original Song. What do you think, Cole? Um, I agree. There's So snubs are tough. Uh, I didn't particularly enjoy some of the movies that you were bringing up, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, I just... My snubs are centered around the genres, though. Um, I mentioned before that The Dark Knight isn't an Oscar-y kind of a movie, but I believe that it transcends the fact that it's just a comic book movie into a great movie with great mm-hmm. performances. Mm-hmm. My opinion, the whole trilogy, a lot does, of I other think. people's opinions, but it's fine if you don't have it. But statistically, mm-hmm. we can prove that the Oscar likes certain kinds of movies more than others, and so I would say that every horror movie, fantasy movie, sci-fi movie, <laughs> and animated movie to have ever come out ever was a snub. You could throw more comedy the, in there, the horror, and comedy as well. The horror uh, genre was well represented at this year's Oscar but ceremony. But winning Best Picture, there has only been one horror movie mm-hmm. ever 
to win Best Picture, and that was Silence of the Lambs in 1991. See, I don't consider that a a horror movie. It's even thriller, even broadening your perspective a little bit. It's the only one even vaguely horror-y. Yeah, but it deserved that (laughs) award. And it's fantastic. Right, 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 right. But, like, so do a lot of other horror movies. Oh, yeah. And then, um, yeah, so there's just so many genres that the Oscars entirely looks over uh, when you have Best Picture, and especially in nowadays when we get them up to 10 nominations, we're still just not seeing these other, uh, like Sean brought up comedy, even mm-hmm. genres mentioned. The Golden Globes does it. That's why to I where like they the Golden have Globes two better categories. than the Oscars. I wish the Golden Globes would actually rename their other category to just drama and not drama. Yeah. Because we always get the, the big stink comes up that says, oh, Get Out's not a drama. Oh, The Martian's not a drama. Yeah. yeah. Or, uh, sorry, comedy. But they're not dramas either. They're the not dramas. Wait, was Get Out nominated for Golden Globe for Best Comedy? Best Comedy. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a black comedy. It's, which is funny because we just watched it the other night and my wife said, I thought you said this was funny. No, no. <laughs> but it's not drama. And so it deserves yeah, that category. Right. Yeah. Okay. So again, if we're fixing the Oscars, maybe incorporate some of what the Golden Globes has. Have your drama, have your biopic, have your Oscar-y movies, and yeah. then have your, your not dramas. Right. Yeah. It's just so surprising in a time when they're trying to be so inclusive. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Sean? Uh, you guys are not going to like me on this one. <laughs> I don't believe in snubs. What? No, I don't. Wow. Because of the voting process that goes through – that everything goes through at the Oscars. Everybody is voting for the nominations. Mm-hmm. It's not like one person is saying, well, yeah, you get a nomination, you get a nomination, you get a nomination. Like Oprah Or even a say. committee <laughs> that's saying you get a nomination. There's thousands of people voting for these things. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's unfortunate that some movies aren't included. Yeah. But there's limitations. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to limit it somewhere. So, I I don't think it's it's not the academy throwing shade on on these movies or these actors yeah um it's just you know but that's there's just even way too many people to vote even though there's a vote. lot of them they're all of this one kind of hive Somewhat. mind that ignores these other kind of movies that come out of it they ignore blockbusters as well and that's what we've talked about mm-hmm. uh, again i I did a lot of – I love the Oscars, right? <laughs> but I did a lot of research and the blockbuster earnings of the movies that are nominated <clears throat> now, even if there's nine of them, can't even compare when there were only five before. They but were acknowledging much, the blockbusters before and they're not now. But how much collusion is there have, does there have to be in order to do that? Not even collusion. I don't blame them for being like uh, – with twirling their mustaches saying, how can we <laughs> stick it to the, the thrillers this year? <laughs> but – they just all happen to think the same kind of movies are good mm-hmm. when you have all the people in America going to see the other movies and mm-hmm. thinking that movies that aren't nominated for Oscars are also really good. Well, I, I do feel like to a certain extent there 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 are snubs because there's so much campaigning that goes behind a lot of these nominations mm-hmm. and the wins. A lot of people are convinced. You usually don't that's see the, the ca- mustache twirling evilness. You of the don't Oscars. see the campaigning though usually until after. True. A lot of a lot of people believe that Saving Private Ryan not winning the Best Picture Oscar was a huge snub, and it was due to all of Harvey Weinstein's campaigning and getting on the phone and and like being very aggressive about it. Oh, we and should we should return that Oscar now. Again, yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, people still talk about and watch Saving Private Ryan, but people don't really talk about and or watch 
Shakespeare and Lev. But at the same time, not believing in snubs, I do believe in consolations. And which is our, our next mm-hmm. category here. Who? And my biggest one. Okay. 2003, The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, winning Best Picture and Best Director. Okay, now why was that and a consolation? Why was that a consolation prize? <laughs> because the year before and the year before that, same director, same movies, yeah. basically. And and it, I mean, they were just as good as the last one. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They didn't give the award until the, the trilogy was complete. Okay. And by the way, that is probably the strongest trilogy that I've seen, other yeah. than maybe the Toy Story trilogy. But that's a different Which is conversation. Going to be- Come a, uh, a fourth story, yeah. quadrilogy. Yeah, and you you kind of feel like that was the weakest of the three films, right? Yeah. So personal opinion, the Return of the King is my least favorite of the three. Understandable. But you're rewarding the body of work. Yeah, which exactly happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's. I think they were rewarding the effort that he put in to do the whole trilogy, and and he did the whole trilogy very well. So. So he got something. So I've I've read things, and again, I'm still I still have not seen The Darkest Hour, and so I apologize for continually throwing shade at something that I've not even seen. But there are people that say that Gary Oldman's victory was a lifetime achievement award. The Oscars That's do have true. an actual lifetime achievement award that they give out, and there was one day that they gave it to a man named Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Oh yes. And his acceptance yeah, speech consisted he... of a thank you. And uh-huh. then he walked away. Well, I don't that think was, he was ever given a best director. No. He was not. Yeah. And that – so that went in my snubs. That went in my forgotten winners sorry, even. Psycho should have – The Apartment is beautiful, right? And mm-hmm. we've seen I it and like we know apartment. that it's good. But Psycho, in my opinion, is better. Um, but that's <laughs> – Alfred Hitchcock directed into a genre that even back in the 60s the Academy didn't care about. Yep. After time, we've realized that his movies were probably really, really awesome. He was a fantastic and revolutionary director. So they gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award, to which he said, thanks, it's well-deserved, and left. they gave Charlie Chaplin a Lifetime Achievement Award at the very first Oscars and said, we we can't top you, so we're taking your name out of consideration. (laughs) Wow. And speaking of awesome, I'm going to go back to Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. I feel that that nomination for Best Original Song was mm-hmm. a consolation prize for not nominating it for Best Animated Feature. That was uh, criminal to me, very criminal. And some, uh, and I've got one other interesting way to look at this. Jim Carrey has never been nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. He's won several, I think, two Golden, Golden Globes, Globes yeah. for Man on the Moon and The Truman Show. When he was not nominated for The Truman Show. He was instead given an opportunity to present an Oscar at the Oscars. That was his consolation prize. And you know what he did? He turned it into one of the funniest presentations at the Oscars that you've seen. And he said, I'm here to pronounce, I'm here to announce the winner for best editing in film. That's all I'm here to do. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he, you know, pretended to cry. And he's like, yo, you got to get out there and you got to talk to people. And yeah, yeah, it was just one of the best speeches I've seen. So I have thoroughly enjoyed this little postmortem. And I hope going forward we, we start to see some changes in the Oscars, whether it's the length whether it's the film representation, some of the, the genre representation. But I think getting back to a comment you made, Sean, I think 
As an audience, we just want to be entertained. Exactly. That's why we tune into the Oscars. Right. It's it's it to me. It's not, I don't care who wins. I don't care who wins each award. It, for me, I'm there to be entertained. I want to hear the songs from the movies. Mm-hmm. I want to see the clips from the movies, and I want to know who passed away. Right. I oh, love yeah. the in memoriam segment. Let's it's be entertained. Be yeah. Take to Twitter. Take to social media when you want to. Yep. Get on your soapbox. But anyway, I still love the Oscars, despite everything we've just said. I will still watch. And I will forgive the Academy for some of these oversights. And they'll make good in the coming years. I know it. One way or another, they'll make good. Well, thanks for joining us on that discussion of the Oscars. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, who are back from Vegas, back in business. And they've got a show coming up here in about 11 minutes. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for the film Every Day on BYU Radio. Every Day has an interesting, though strange, premise for the plot. What if you woke up every day in a new body? You inhabit that body for 24 hours and then switch. You don't get to choose who you inhabit next, either. And what if you fell in love with someone? That's where this story begins. A is the person who inhabits a different body each day. It could be male or female, but one day he is Justin, and A falls in love with Rhiannon, Justin's girlfriend. That's where this film becomes interesting and confusing. As I was watching the film, I was interested in the love story, but it became too involved in the science to make me care about the story. Every time the two protagonists would have a chance, the circumstances surrounding them would change the flow of the relationship. It felt as though the conditions of the relationship were used as a crutch to manipulate the audience. The film could not choose whether it was a science fantasy story or a love story, and it tried to be both, but failed. I did think the director was able to keep a flow with the character of A, since there were so many actors playing that part, including A inhabiting Rhiannon's body for a day. I also enjoyed the positive family themes in the film. There is some language dispersed throughout the story, but mostly by just one character. Teenagers are seen drinking and discussing being wasted, plus they are seen smoking. Some sexual activity is implied. A girl is showering, but only seen from the shoulders up. Every day is rated PG-13, and I'm giving it a C-plus grade. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. And the Academy Award for Best... Sports duo on BYU Broadcasting goes to Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation. With The award is also going to be shared with Jason Shepard of BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jason, how are you? Oh, fantastic. Good. Thank you. I want to hear your speech. You've got 30 seconds and you'll win a jet ski. Um, Thank okay. the Academy. Uh, I would like to thank the uh, Brigham Young University Broadcasting Academy (laughs) for allowing us uh, just about five years ago to take the keys to a Porsche in Studio B and, and drive it however we wanted to.
Wow. I speak metaphorically because that's what we feel like. When Thank- we were handed the reins to this show, <laughs> we we feel like we were given a Porsche and we're just a couple of young guys. And you've taken uh, you've taken very good care of it. And thank you for not getting political in your speech, by the way. Oh. <laughs> That's why I didn't watch the Academy Awards because I didn't want to have to be hit over the head with all that this year. Yeah. And you know what? I, I didn't feel as far as like uh, – Trump talk that I think there was one Trump Trump reference this year, whereas the year before I counted 14, which is the number that I guessed there would be. Um, Anyway, that's getting off uh, topic, the topic at hand, which is BYU Sports Nation, which is coming up in about seven and a half minutes. What is coming up on the show? I promise there will be no hashtag shut up and dribble. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) there will be none of that. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's see. How about we start with what has your attention right now? Because we have entered an interesting point of the athletic calendar year at BYU, and that is BYU basketball kind of in limbo as they await for their Mm postseason destination. Inevitably, it's going to be the NIT, but where will that be? Will they have a home game? Do people care about that? Because that's what happened the past two years. And... BYU football with a new offensive staff and eight quarterbacks in the room at some point. Ooh, yeah. Does that have your attention? The two go head-to-head in a way. Now, what about, I was driving by the baseball stadium last night and looked at the scoreboard, and at that point of the game, it was 8-1 to in BYU's favor. Uh Uh-huh. That's how it ended. Yeah, that was the final. Wow. That's a good that's a good way to start off the year. Yeah, I mean they they actually led pretty quick. It was it was four nothing, I think, in like the fourth inning and uh they pretty much had the game in control at that point. But yeah, nice way. And and Jordan Wood, the pitcher, complete game right Are out you serious? of the gate for the home opener. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a it was a fun night. You got to debut the brand new field, which looked awesome. The team played really well. So it was a fun night. I, I was there. It was it was a lot of fun. All right. So, uh, anything else coming up on the show that we should be excited for? Yeah, Spencer was talking about, you know, talking about football. We've got spring practices that are continuing. We're actually wrapping up week number one. They're putting on pads today for the first time. Mm. So, Spencer and I will we'll talk a little bit about what uh, what storylines have grabbed our attention uh, during the first week of fall, or excuse me, of spring camp. Yes, and we will also discuss Jimmer Fredette back on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Jeff. Ooh, really? Yeah. In your mind, what's the most iconic Sports Illustrated cover ever? Not just for BYU, but just like if you think about Sports Illustrated and a cover, what's the first one that comes into your mind? Oh, um, I know where Sean O'Neill's mind is going right now. <laughs> uh, let's see. Anything with Michael Jordan on the cover. Uh, yeah, that was yes. mentioned just a second ago, as a matter of fact. Yes. For me, the Michael Jordan and the most recognizable cover that, I mean, I just it takes me back to my childhood, is when he announced his first retirement, he's walking away, so it shows his back, and then it says the question, why? Yeah. And I remember feeling so sad that he was retiring, almost like cheated, like, ugh. Like the greatest why? of all time, just why? walking why? away. What are you doing? No. Like, yeah, he, he was my... As much as I hated that he dominated the Utah Jazz, like I, I didn't want him to retire from basketball. 
Well, that's all coming up right now. Well, not right now, but in about four and a half minutes on BYU Sports Nation with Spencer and Jason. And uh, hopefully we'll find out the mystery of what happened to Jerem Jordan, why he was left in Las Vegas. <laughs> we, uh, we may or may not be able to discuss that. Okay. So I didn't think you were going to take everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas quite literally. So, uh, all right. Well, good luck, you guys. Have a great show. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. We need to get into our panning for good segment as we end the show here. There's good in them dire hills. So my wife and I had the opportunity, and Cole knows about this because he tried to text me while I was on my date last night, and this is why I didn't text him back, and this is why he didn't go see A Wrinkle in Time. Which is all okay. It's all forgiven. Mm -hmm. We had the very unique opportunity to see in concert an eight-time Academy Award-winning composer by the name of Alan Menken. Now, you might not know him by name, but you most certainly know the scores and the songs that he has composed. And I was blown away as he burned through his whole array of compositions throughout the evening. He was going at a lightning pace so that he could squeeze as many songs as he possibly could in the two-hour show. He, of course, wrote songs and the scores for The Little Mermaid. Aladdin, Little Shop of Horrors, Beauty and the Beast, Hercules, Newsies. Uh, he did, he's doing all of the upcoming songs for the live action Aladdin. He did it for Beauty and the Beast. He's doing it for uh, The Little Mermaid. This is a man who has won eight Oscars. More, he's won more Oscars than any living individual. And uh, they're all well-deserved. And it was amazing how many times throughout the show where I turned to my wife and was just said, wow. And these are songs that I've heard. And so many songs that he didn't win an Oscar for. He's certainly somebody that could be included in the uh, snub category of Oscars. But fantastic show. Go listen to the songs of Alan Menken and go watch the films for which he's scored those uh, – he's put together scores and songs. You will not regret it. That is part of our Panning for Good segment today. And that's going to do it for Screen Cleaning here on The Matt Townsend Show.